This week on Out Now with Aaron and Abe, we're talking The Nun 2 and Talk to Me. Wait a minute, I forgot my introduction. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and Abe is unfortunately not here this week. He's out on assignment. But Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. We dig into movies, be most supportive for your review, the occasional commentary track, or some other film movie topic. This is episode 548, 548, and we have a double header this week. We are talking two movies, two horror movies, right in time for the for spooky season, of course, as we begrudgingly like to call it i don't even think we begrudgingly like to call it. i don't think we like to call it that at all but we just say the word spooky season every now and then but regardless we're talking two horror movies uh we have the nun 2 sequel to the nun uh, part of the conjuring universe and because we've never actually given a, a, a greater discussion about it we certainly wanted to we're going to finally talk about talk to me the a24 horror hit they arrived this summer uh, I mean, we're going to probably delve into a little some spoilers on that one, too, since it's been out for such a long time. So prepare for that, audiences, if you're looking forward to both of our chats on these films. Uh, joining me to discuss The Nun 2 and Talk To Me, we have, from We Live Entertainment, he doesn't need possession to lead him into slamming his head on the wall. It's Peter Paris. <laughs> hey, everybody. And joining us from Cal State Fullerton, if you ask him more than what you need to know, he'll tell you it's none your business. It's Professor Mike Dillon. Hey, handsome. Um, <laughs> quick question. Is it is it A24? Or is it A24? I I, oh, good. I say oh, no. it both ways. I feel like I say A24 more. I've only ever heard 24, and so it kind of caught me off guard when you said 24. I like to mix things up for you. So Can I say something that Thanks. has nothing to do with it? But uh, uh, there's a restaurant in my neighborhood. I live in uh, like West Hollywood called Open, you know, Open Sesame. And a friend of mine who I was with, she was like, I heard it's not open sesame. It's actually open says me. And I was like, wait, is that true? Like, uh, but you guys saying 24 or 24 made me think of that. What do you guys think it is? I'm trying uh, to four. I'm trying to remember what like the the exact meaning of the It's 24. from Alibaba on the 20 because I looked oh, I know it what up, open, like, I know what open sesame is. Yes, thank you. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. Because I was like, yeah, uh, what do you so what, what, were, wait, what were you asking? Were you asking about I'm that? Asking you asking what you, I'm asking thing? what you guys think. Do you no no no, no I'm asking my thing. Do you think it says me or sesame? It's oh. Well, I haven't seen it spelled out. I would assume it's sesame since the first word is open. Right, but I sort of, no, I think, you know, you're right. But I could sort of see how someone on the internet is like, wait a minute, maybe it's open says me. Because the letters would look kind of similar. I'm like, yeah, it is kind of just the inflection. Of well, like, hold on, the place is called open and then the word sesame is next to it, correct? No, I, I'm not talking about the, re yes, I'm not talking about the restaurant. I'm talking about the actual Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. What does he say? Does he say open sesame? Or does I mean, he say I open assume, I'm I mean, for one thing, it's not English to begin with, so it's always wrong. But I, so right. I, assume, I assume it's open sesame, given that that's the Anglo-produced version of what that phrase is. Right, it's actually a French novel, but yes, same thing. It's, I was it's like, not, eh, it's, it's, probably, it's not American, yeah. it's not English. <laughs> That's my point. No, but it's not actually like from a, where you would, yeah, region. I, I didn't, I didn't imply yeah. anything. You're, you're, take, you're taking that away. <laughs> I'm sorry, I got off in a weird tangent. Just the notion of like, is something I've always heard A24, but then I was like, I don't know, it could be A24. Like, I say, I honestly, I interchange it. I do that with a lot of words, on, generally on purpose, <laughs> but, um, well, Aaron, if you like Mediterranean, Open Sesame does look pretty good. I've just looked it up as a as an East Hollywood person myself, Peter. <laughs> ah, 
All right. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm glad Maybe we got all that out of control. Open opens the same? Is that the same? Yes. I'm just going by the phonetics here. Opens the same. <laughs> you guys good, by the way? You guys doing well? I'm uh again kind of hungry. Yeah, frankly. Better, I've had a better weekend than I have in a while, so I guess that's good. Yes. Yes, uh, that yeah. is good. Yeah, Peter. I'm doing good. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I will say yes. Really spiking up the positivity at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> <let me tell. laughs> Jeez. Wait, wait. I'm so sorry. Wait, Mike, where are you right now? I'm in East Hollywood, <clears throat> Los Feliz. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Los Feliz. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's another one. Is it Los Feliz or is it Los Feliz? <laughs> that could be the whole that could be the whole podcast tonight. Is that what is the bastard Americanized version of this? Just no, no, I just cut off 30 minutes of this episode. Now we're back talking about the regular stuff again. So let's get to some show notes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, first up, uh, the the 11th annual Summer Movie Gamble has come to an end. Uh, we recorded that episode last week, and uh, for those that haven't listened yet, I won't detail everything that happened, but I'll just say uh, Marcus Robinson hasn't shut up about it yet. So just uh, be, you know, <laughs> tune into that episode, because that's a lot of fun, because we do go over the summer at the movies, as we always do, and we have a lot of fun uh, going over who placed where in said competition. Um, what else? Commentary track. It is a new month. It is September. And before we get to Halloween season, I've already ditched the spooky season thing. <laughs> before we get to all that, we are going to do a, a commentary for the film True Romance, which uh, literally today is celebrating its 30th anniversary. Yeah, that's the plan. We'll be recording that this week. So uh, stay tuned because that's going to be a lot of fun. Wow, 30 years. I know, right? You're old. Uh, <laughs> uh, what else? Uh, I tease the ratings, of course. Good to get those. Helps out the show. Helps other people, helps other people find the show. Well, I'll go to iTunes, search for out now, there today, and you can do just that. You can find our show on iTunes. You can pick the old uh, review and ratings tab and write a sentence or so if you want to give some star ratings. That'd be great. Pop us up on the old iTunes charts. Okay, let's move on. Let's uh, let's get to some out now quickies. TM each week out now. We move to talk about the week that's out there. Yeah. Okay. Mike, let's start with you. What have you seen recently? What have I seen? I ha- I haven't seen much from america i've had a, a spate of international films uh yeah we talked briefly over text about rmn from romania mm-hmm. which I think we were both very positive on um revoir perry is uh, uh and the worst ones are two french films that i thought were both quite good and i recommend um and then just yesterday i saw love life which is this year's sort of prestige drama from japan which is good but i i don't know that it's great <clears throat> that's about it what kind of what kind of What's films that? are these what kind of films are these revoir perry is a a drama it involves a, a mass shooting and it's about a woman who survives one and trying to piece together the the memories of what happened hmm. um it's very heavy but very very rewarding i thought dramatically the worst ones is this kind of interesting it's not quite a comedy, although it is quite funny at times, about a filmmaker who is trying to cast underprivileged um, uh, sort of street youth to be in a film about uh, such people. And so it's it's about his dealing with these child actors. Um, and, and it's it's very pointed, like this this uh, director is this sort of clueless liberal who who thinks he's doing good by shedding light on the, the this downtrodden community, but he's actually just completely clueless as to how to actually engage with these people. Um, that's very good. And then Love Life is one of these movies that has a major spoiler in the first 10 minutes. Yeah. But it's about a, a couple who are dealing with a, with a loss. Um, 
and kind of the it's it's a relationship movie about their the 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 phrase and their relationship and other people come into their lives. Japan's rabbit hole. It's it doesn't have the kind of emotional catharsis that I got out of you know like uh like uh drive my car or something, but mm. it's good. I, I caught that yeah rabbit hole. I got that reference. I've also been looking for some good trash cinema. So any recommendations from you guys are appreciated. And by that, I mean, like films that feel like they capture the essence of like 70s grindhouse. Um, the best one I've seen recently is called Candyland, which I thought was if you have the taste for it, which is to say, if you have if you adore bad taste in movies, I thought this one was really fun and and grimy and trashy. So I'll give you that one. I um yeah. I as as many know, uh, Gross Point Blank is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, the mm-hmm. director George Armitage, um, in the seventies, made a film called Hitman with Bernie Casey and Pam Greer in an early role, and uh, it is it is a black exploitation film produced by Roger by Roger Corman's brother by the Corman Company, but not specifically a Roger Corman by his brother. Um, it has Bernie Casey, as I said. Um, it is literally Get Carter. But done as a black exploitation movie. It's based on the same book, uh, so it's not remaking Get Carter specifically. It's remaking, or it's just it's adapting that same story, but it's just set in L.A. instead. And it's from what I've read, more faithful to that story. And uh, wouldn't necessarily say trash cinema, but I mean it's certainly you know it's a '70s black exploitation flick. So I mean it certainly has you know elements that fit the time um, when it comes to those kinds of movies. So I found I saw that on Hoopla. I was looking for it. I found it. Finally hit on Hoopla. So awesome. Writing it down. There you go. Peter, how about you? What have you seen recently? Uh, recently, I saw uh, Haunting in Venice. Yeah, you, we were there. <laughs> um, I liked it. I think I saw your review. Don't don't worry about what I wrote. That's next week's show. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. Uh, no i I enjoy I enjoy those movies. The weird thing to me is always that like I like Kenneth Branagh, and I've never read the Agatha Christie. The, the, I guess many. I got the Christie uh, Perot. Is that is it? How do you say the guy's last name? Hercule Perot. Yeah, Perot. I've never read the book okay. or seen any other film adaptations. <laughs> I enjoy them, but it's it's weird to me because like they just seem so like just okay compared to Ryan Johnson's Knives Out movies, and they kind of feel the same thing as far as like except that those those are wholly original, right? The Knives Out. That's just a let's take a made. stand and call them the benoit blanc movies so we don't right, brand, yeah. we don't, so we don't brand them as just the first movie <laughs> oh no no true true yeah so i think that the ryan johnson uh ones are really great i think i really like them both and then these i'm like yeah they're good <laughs> like they're, they're well shot you always get an interesting cast uh this one i was kind of speaking of since we're doing two horror movies like tonight this one i I knew it wasn't going to be like super scary, but I was like, oh, I kind of appreciate that it's like, you know, what if what if Perot couldn't explain this? What if it was a supernatural element? And I was like, all right, I'm I'm down to see where this goes. And it's kind of, I mean, it's still it's it's good, it's good. Um, I think the the biggest thing that surprised me was how well shot it was. But I forgot Midnight on the Orient Express was really well shot. Jewel and Nile, as I recall, Death. sort of well shot, but has Death some of the CG Nile. stuff. Death and the Nile, sorry. Oh yeah, not, Jewel not, and Nile. Not, not, the, uh, not, Stone. not, the, not right. the Michael Douglas Captain Turner sequel. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but like, yeah, I I was impressed with how well shot it was. I was like, oh, this is really like 
and a lot of Brando's movies are like um without getting so, into it I'll, I'll just add that those first two were shot on 70 millimeter where this one was shot digitally oh okay well, that's that something to note. yeah um, Aaron, Aaron is that why you don't worry about what I thought of the movie well that's <laughs> next week's show <laughs> I think the other thing I'm watching is I'm trying to catch up on Star Wars Rebels I'm not watching all of Star Wars Rebels I'm just watching the ones where they're like if you want to watch Ahsoka, you should watch these episodes. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the third season right now, and I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. I, I like Star Wars Rebels. I think it's pretty enjoyable. I like the cast of characters. O- off podcast, Aaron had told me he doesn't love the art style as much as um, Clone Wars. And I would agree. I would agree. But I, it, it's fine. Like, I don't hate the art style or anything. But um, I will say what's interesting to me is that, like, Ahsoka in Rebels, and from what I remember in Clone Wars, is kind of like this upbeat kind of character. And in the trailers for Ahsoka, and from what I remember in um, Mandalorian, or is it in Book of Boba Fett? She's in she both. Like, she's in both. She's she's kind of like uh, she. It's it's weird because you hire Rosario Dawson, who is so charismatic, but she's like very much playing it like this kind of dour character. And I, I hear that, you know, well, Ahsoka goes through a lot of shits. And so it's been decades, you know, this is the who she is now. Well, Peter, like, as, it, as, yeah. as we all know in Star Wars, once you cross 50, you just become really just stoic and not fun anymore. That's how it, <laughs> it whether you're Ewan McGregor or, Alex, <laughs> yeah, or, or Liam Neeson or Eddie, but like they, they all just act too, they're too wise to have fun. Except for right. Alec Guinness, who, you know, being the first one of these in the first movie of these, you'd think they'd take a few lessons from that, but they didn't. So everyone's just stoic and sad all the time when it comes to je- old Jedi. Yeah. So but, so I am looking forward to watching Ahsoka. I'm, I'm in no rush because I just want to finish Rebels. But um, but yeah, I would say that's where I am with uh, new stuff. Well, I'm enjoying the current Ahsoka series. I think it's just fun Star Wars. And it's doing the job when it comes to these Disney Plus shows. Not quite reaching the heights of Andor, but it's like it's entertaining. Like it's a show that I'm happy to watch and it delivers lightsaber battles and stuff. So why not? Uh, all right. Well, thanks, Peter. I've I've seen a few things as well. And Mike, I've actually I was on the international tip, too. I uh, watched Jawan. Um, this is the oh, I know. Jawan is the latest uh, Hindi Indian uh, action film that it, action is such a <laughs> diminishing way to like present it because it's everything uh, but it's uh, it stars uh, Shah Rukh Khan who is like one of the most famous movie stars in the world <laughs> that's not American uh, but he was also in Pathan earlier this year uh, which I quite enjoyed uh, this I think I like a little bit more uh, because it's more ambitious it has more ideas on its mind as what it's trying to do it's hard to like explain everything that happens in this movie because it's such a full meal of a film. But essentially, there is a person who is he, he's driven by certain motivations to conduct like what seems like terrorist acts, but instead of like bombing things or whatnot, it's more of he takes hostages to some degree and then forces the government to pay up. But instead of paying him, he uses the the like the reward or whatever the the hostage money to like benefit the society of India. Um, that is a tip of the iceberg as far as like what's going on in this movie because there is, as you have with many kind of Indian 
language film. So there's action, there's drama, there's romance, there's I think four or five musical numbers. Uh, this is a two hour forty five minute movie. It's really entertaining. It is. It's. It's not like nearing the the heights of RRR because honestly, what can? But it's certainly a very entertaining movie. I was happy to see it in a theater. Um, it's got just that great earnestness that I've really been enjoying about these kind of Indian action films I've been watching as of late. And uh, I'd certainly say uh, check it out if you get the chance uh, while it's in theaters. Uh, another film I saw, Sick of Myself. Mike, did you see this movie? I did. I saw that. Uh, yeah, what festival was it? Saw it a while back. It's great. Norway, it's, right? It's Yes, yeah, it's a Norwegian film that it's not quite like Ruben Osland as far as like the comedy of it is concerned, but it certainly like plays into the really cringy nature of like what characters can do to be like awful and yet you can't stop watching them this this film involves like a very narcissistic woman who goes to extreme lengths to keep herself as the center of attention at all times and that's all i really need to say about it i will say it's frequently funny but in the way that like i said is very awkward and uncomfortable at times to watch so like if you're into cringe comedy this is very much like playing into that and it has plenty it, to say about it's a, yeah no it's a very deft balancing act because on the one hand mm -hmm. it's obviously a social satire and it's it's a comedy it's quite funny and, and darkly funny but it's also kind of a body horror film a bit yes like right so yeah and as a social drama generally. So I thought the the balancing act is really deft in that film. I remember liking it a lot. Yeah. And it, I'm glad it was only like, I, like my body, like I react so harsh on things like this as far as like having my, like I, horror movies, I don't cringe at. I don't like look through my fingers at, but when it's like awkward comedy scenarios, that's where my hands go over my eyes in a lot of places. So it's like this, this is like a lot to handle, but I was very much enjoying it. Yeah, it, it, it does the job for what it needs to do. It's on Paramount Plus, right? Or Showtime, technically, but it's on Paramount Plus right now. That's where I saw that one. Um, I also, finally, because I've been waiting for this Blu-ray to arrive at my house, saw the Venture Brothers, colon, Radiant is the Blood of the Baboon Heart. This is the, presumably, series finale of the Venture Brothers in the form of a 90-minute movie. And if you're a fan of the Venture Brothers... This movie delivers the goods. I I don't know what else to say on that. If you're if you're if you're a fan of the series, this delivers all you you, you would want out of uh, a feature length version of the Venture Brothers. I I've been a huge fan of this show forever. Um, it's been on since like the early two thousands, and uh, yeah, I was very happy to get uh, closure after it was unceremoniously canceled on a on it from a Adult Swim uh, due to WB being just a garbage fire these days as far as decisions being made. Um, what else? I also watched the film Fremont. I give you a Fremont. I saw that one too. I, I that was a Sundance film, I think. Yeah, it yeah. was, and I, I don't know how I missed it because I I know I know Fremont. Abe would be up in his chair right now, being like Fremont. Uh, they made a movie, but uh, uh, this is a solid little movie. Um, it's very Jim Jarmusch in <laughs> in its presentation. It features a uh, young woman who was like a translator in the military in Afghanistan. And now she's she works in she lives in Fremont. She works in San Francisco at a fortune cookie factory. And um, basically, like minor things occur that kind of affect her life. And as I mentioned, Jarmusch is like a huge reference point for this film. Very, very obviously in terms of the kind of the pacing and the tone, very, very dry humor. 
Um, even and the photography, the photography is yeah, it's shot black and white and presented in the Academy ratio. Like it's very, it's very uh, minimalistic in its presentation, but it's also like very good. And it has a couple key performances that pop up in there, in addition to the lead, uh, the actress um, uh, Anita Wali Zada. She's very good, but you have a few other people that pop in here as well. Um, I, I, I really, I really enjoyed this movie. I, it's, it's the kind of film that I. When you're in the right mood for something like Jarbush or something similar to that, when they do it well, it, it works. And yeah, I was, I was a fan of this movie. Yeah. Um, if if I'm remembering correctly, so she plays an Afghan translator who's uh, immigrated to the States. But mm-hmm. I believe the actress is also, she has a similar background. She's an I Afghan, believe, yeah. Yeah. right? I believe that's, that, yeah, from what I remember reading about it, I believe it's the, yes, it's like they cast her like a real life Afghan refugee. And she's like a first time actor as well. If if we're doing um, Sundance throwbacks, can I just throw in one more film? Sure. The two films I uh, there's a few that I remember really liking out of Sundance. Um, Fremont was sort of I, I checked that one, but the one I think I liked the most was this drama from Australia called uh, Shada. Oh yeah, I didn't get to see. It. I saw that was on. I just I I lapsed in time to be able to see it, so I didn't get to see it. Yeah, I don't. I haven't been keeping up whether or not it got picked up and whether it has a release schedule yet, but if. If and when it comes around, uh, don't miss it. It's quite good. And it stars uh, Zara Ibrahimi, who is the uh, lead from Holy Spider. And she's just magnificent. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. How do you spell uh, that film? S-H-A-Y-D-A. Y-D-A, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it got picked up by anybody. Although, like, there's a trailer out there. So, who knows? We'll see. Uh, yeah, okay. Thanks for shouting that out. I'm going to keep in mind. All right. That's it. How quick is Yeah, let's move on now. Let's get to our trailer talk. Where we talk about one of the newest movie chairs of the week, what we thought of it, what have you. And now we are skewing into horror territory, because this week we're talking Five Nights at Freddy's. This is an upcoming, I guess, supernatural horror movie that's based on a based on a video game franchise. It's produced by Blumhouse. I uh, I don't know the game, like beyond the fact that I believe it's like a point and click game. Peter, am I, am I right about that? It is. It's a very big because I it is kind of like an indie game that kind of was like a, I think it's a free to play and everything. And then it just became, it kind of like took off and stuff like, uh, but yeah, yeah. It's not like a big triple A title or anything, but I mean like the style game, it's like a point and click kind of game, right? Yes. Yeah. I think it is. I think you're right. I think it is pretty like sure. That's what old school point and click type of thing. Yeah. Like, um, like, like the telltale games. Right. But it's very much obviously supposed to be a takeoff of like a, you know, an evil, possessed Chuck E. Cheese. Uh, yeah, kind, that's kind the general thing. plot here. Josh Hutcherson stars as a security guard who accepts a job at Freddy's Fazbear's Pizza. Um, and he discovers that the animatronic mascots uh, kill people. Because, you know, that happens. Um, uh, real quick, there was a movie a short while ago yes. with a page called Willy's Wonderland. Is yes, that it is. sort of a, It's kind of a based off of the Friday night or five, oh, five nights at freddy's yeah i mean it's mike you're, you're hitting you're hitting my main point right here which is I, I am i intrigued by a five nights at freddy's movie based on what i'm seeing well i would be if i hadn't already seen willie's Wonderland with nick cage um i which was an r-rated film and features nicholas cage so it's like I don't know what the PG-13 version starring Josh Hutcherson is going to have to offer, but I, I hope it's something good because right now it's kind of batting at a low um, as far as its potential to give me something that feels like a pretty unique premise where I don't know how much else you can do with this that I wasn't already satisfied by once. But Peter, where are you with, with this trailer for this movie? 
I thought it looked okay. I mean, it, it looked pretty. Like it, it's debuting August October twenty seventh on Peacock too, right? I it's think a it simultaneous is. release on Peacock and in theaters. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it very much feels like a sure. I'll, I'll watch this on Peacock. Like I like that. The I don't. Sorry, I don't remember her name, but uh, the woman who was in a uh, countdown, which was a not great uh, kind of uh, Final Destination esque ripoff movie with the deadly app or whatever. But uh-huh. I like that actress. I was like, ah, she's all right. And it's like, oh, so she's the Elizabeth security Lee? guard. Yeah, it is something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I like the PETA guy, Hutchinson. So, yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean, the moment it was like Peacock, I was like, all right, that's how I'll watch it. Unless, you know, unless there's a screening or whatever. I was like, eh, you know, so, um, yeah, I thought it looked okay. Like, I did what I think the, I think I either needed a more hard R kind of hook for me, or I needed, the cast to just be like you know like the hunt or something where you're like oh my god this cast looks super fun or whatever so yeah it looks all right actually i, for- <laughs> I mean you know i, I forgot good. i forgot to list this on my list of trailers that we're supposed to talk about um did you did you watch the thanksgiving trailer oh yeah now that looks good yeah <laughs> funny how it's so much different than the actual grindhouse like you know with the voice and everything it's such a different trailer i mean obviously because it's a real movie now but um well yeah yeah it looks fun yeah and really good cast mike are you interested in that at all eli roth's actual thanksgiving movie um interested enough yeah i'll go see that i mean unless the reviews get the better of me and i think nah this can wait but oh sure sure i mean I'm eli not... roth can't be you know but that's the, that's there. the thing like eli roth has this weird like seemingly glow around him where it's like well he makes movies and people go to see them i guess not in like droves but it's like there's always seems to be like a curiosity with his films but it's like does he have like a great movie like i know the hostels you know get their attention but it's like i think knock knock's pretty solid i know a lot of people like knock knock i like knock knock Knock, and i i feel like which made like three dollars at the box office but right yeah exactly (laughs) Like, like I think I enjoy the Hostel films, and I'm I'm not positive oh, yeah. on that, but I enjoy Cabin Fever enough that I think if he's making a film sort of in that vein, that kind of early, gory kind of you know, uh, exploitation uh, mindset, then Thanksgiving could work and would be therefore worth worth a trip to go check it out. But like I feel like the Green Inferno got close to that too, as far as the 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 you know the the schlockiness of it, <laughs> but like my issue with the great inferno was like it's really badly acted (laughs) like embarrassingly badly acted and i couldn't tell if it was on purpose or not here's a movie that has like peter you just mentioned it has a cast it has you know these heavy hitters patrick dempsey addison ray rick hoffman from the hostel movie uh gina gershon like it has people in it that you know have been in things or what have you so like i'd like to think that there'll be a you know some of an effort to capture something that resembles reality uh, as far as the acting goes. But like, yeah, the the movie itself, I'm certainly curious about. I didn't I I kept like forgetting that he was actually going to make a feature like the version of that trailer, much like uh, Machete. Um, but here we are. And yes, it's a very different trailer than the Grindhouse trailer by nature of the fact that it's a real movie now. And so it's not just throw everything into this two minutes Instead, it's like here. Here's the 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 brief tease of what's to come, and yeah, I'm I'm curious if Eli Roth is if he's equipped to do, to do this kind of movie. It seems like he certainly is a fan of this kind of movie, so we'll see what happens. 
Um, I, I would I would suggest that Eli Roth is probably aware enough of the kind of discourse around his career that uh-huh. he knows that he really wants this movie to stick the landing. He needs to just go for it mm-hmm. and just go just completely bananas with it. And if he isn't equipped, like you say, if he's not equipped to do that anymore, then that's where this movie will fail. Well, that's the thing is like Death Wish seemed like something that could have been up his alley, but it's like the movie sucks. I mean, it's like it just. It, oh, that was terrible. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> like that seems like something he could probably have knocked out. But then again, The House of a Clock in Its Walls, his PG kids horror film, I quite enjoyed. So like, I don't know what to think anymore of Eli Roth as far as his abilities go. <laughs> and like, I've, I've not heard the best things about Borderlands. I believe he's been like replaced as director for the time being, or at least like they're doing a lot of pickups with, with another director, if I'm not mistaken. Um, which, you know, things happen. Tim Miller, that's right. Deadpool's Tim Miller is doing like the reshoots on that one. But which might have, you know, might be due to just having to film Thanksgiving at the same time. and just didn't have time. So I don't know. I don't know. I can't, I can only speculate. But I, you know, horror is Eli Roth's roots. Here's, you know, <laughs> how old is Grindhouse at this point? You know, over uh, 16 years in the making, we're getting the, the, the movie of Thanksgiving. We'll see what happens, I guess. Uh, that movie arrives November 17th, right before Thanksgiving. Uh, Five Nights at Freddy's uh, arrives in theaters in Peacock on October 27th, the end of next month. So there you go. Hmm. All right, let's move on now. Let's get to let's get to our first of our main reviews for The Nun. Two. This thing, it's come back for me. This demon was once an angel. Rejected by God. Stripped of power. It wants that power back. It's okay to be scared. I'm scared too. You send that thing back to hell. All right, that should have been some of the trailer for The Nun 2. Thanks to its effectiveness in The Conjuring 2, The Nun became its own spin off movie in 2018. It wasn't given the kindest reception, but that didn't stop the film from making the most money of any of the films in the entire Conjuring universe. Given the growing number of spinoffs and sequels, naturally there would be more Nun to go around, and here we are with the Nun 2. Set four years after the first, the demon that takes the form of a sinister Nun is bringing death across Europe, and following up on the end of the previous film, it seems to be residing inside of Maurice, a kindly handyman, now residing at a boarding school in France. Sister Irene is back on the case and joined by a young novice, and the two attempt to find the source of this evil and exercise some demons. Now, Peter, I'm aware you haven't seen The Nun 2 as of yet, but feel free to throw in any questions you might have as we go through our uh, review of the film here. But Mike, cool. I am certainly curious. What did you think of The Nun 2? Aaron, I was none too pleased. <laughs> um, actually, that's putting it kindly just for the sake of that that uh, amazing pun. I think you'll agree. Um, d- just I'll keep it brief. I hated this film. Whoa. Yeah, okay, and... wait a minute. It can't be worse than the first one. Is well, it? So... So the thing is, I, I should note, I still haven't seen none one. Oh, okay. All right. I, I, I did cover some clips uh, in advance just on YouTube just to get a feel for it. And I do understand this one is getting better reviews, but that seems like a really low bar. Um, to me, this movie reinforces everything I hate about studio horror. Um, I found it incredibly cynical and pandering and repetitive and maybe worst of all, just quite boring. Um, there's really just... 
nothing I found of substance whatsoever, no narrative complexity, no thematic complexity, or even really an attempt at any of these things. And so I feel like um, all we're really left with to evaluate whether or not this film is effective is that the one thing it does propose to do, which is to set up and deliver jump scares and atmosphere, um, or maybe put it another way, atmosphere that's conducive to jump scares. It has one job, and I think it fails at that completely. Um, hmm. And I'll note, if you're not going to deliver the scares, then you have to deliver the kills. And this film has no good kills. So, um, yeah, I, I'm i a big thumbs down on this. I think the cold open has one good kill in it, as far as, like, hey, thumbs back, guys. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the funny thing is, I don't disagree with anything you've just said beyond the beyond boring. I didn't I didn't find this film boring because I was engaged uh, by what was going on. Um, my my hope was that much like Annabelle, the sequel to the first film in the spinoff series of these films would be like a, an increase. And like you mentioned, the reviews are more positive for this film compared to the first one, and I think that's appropriate. I it's weird. I like. Will I ever go back to the Nun 2? No. But did I find myself satisfied with what it had to offer as a decent scare machine? Yes, it's fine. Like, I I feel like this movie is trying hard to balance the lore of this Conjuring universe with just being a horror movie. And while, Mike, I can see why you would think this movie just fails completely at that as far as the horror film goes... Even if I can say, like, I wasn't necessarily scared during this movie, I do think that it's satisfying what it's going for on that very empty promise of, hey, there's a nun and occasionally she appears and scares people. I, <laughs> It's such faint praise, but given how much I don't care about the lore of all of this, and I'm just sitting here watching the film based on, like, all right, what's this nun up to this time? And because of how much I didn't like the first nun, I don't know. I maybe I was just worn down by what I was expecting here, but I thought it was fine. I I I think uh, Michael Chavez was a I, he had a better time making this movie than I think Corn Hardy did on the first film, where the first film tried to be this kind of gothic horror, and I think really failed at that. This movie like removes the gothic aspect and just kind of wants to be more of like a fun house kind of thing, as far as the settings we go to and what have you. I honestly I thought I thought it was fine like I think the in the realm of these conjuring films that are all rated R no matter what um I think the series is generally very tame when it comes to that I can agree that there aren't many like signature kills and I'm like oh yeah I remember that kill in the nun too like that's not really going to be a thing that I'll ever have to say but I do think it's a bloodier movie on average than most of these other R-rated conjuring movies which is not nothing um and like, I was actually a little surprised that it was R-rated because yeah, it, I say that every time I watch a Conjuring movie because like there's not a lot in these. <laughs> like, they, don't, they don't do it. I I strongly suspect because I think if they wanted a PG-13, it wouldn't involve much it, editing. Right? It wouldn't. Really... No, I know. I'm convinced that the Conjuring series has frequently added stuff to get the R rating. I, I yes. feel like that's been a very I big think... part of it. Exactly what I was going to think. I think they're aiming for R because that suggests a certain edginess that brings in a certain type of audience, right? A, a sort of credibility in the genre. Yeah. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, you're fine. I, I um, What I was going to say is that I, the thing that I think works for me with these films compared to some of the other 
compared to Annabelle mainly is the fact that the nun, even if I like two of the Annabelle films more than most of these, I think the nun as a movie monster is effective, let alone a female movie monster, which you don't get really often. Like there's a physical presence there where Annabelle is just a doll that never moves. Uh, so it's like, well, that's something. That's something I can grasp onto. I like that there's the kind of iconography that goes with this specific character. I'm wildly confused by its abilities and powers. I think the movie does a terrible job of like establishing what is its power set. Like if this, like Peter, if the nun was like a final boss in a video game, it'd be the most fucking frustrating boss battle you'd ever had. Because you'd be like, <laughs> what does she do? Like the <laughs> like at one point she's like floating and she's launching spikes at you, and then it's like blood water, <laughs> and then it's like chains come out. It's like be one thing like this is, this is difficult right. yeah yeah so i mean i i get it that the demon has to play with its food right uh, it's gonna fuck around it's it loves a bait and switch it loves to go thump uh you know mm -hmm. but that's a genre thing right it's not an inherent weakness of this specific film but sure. what really bothers me is just how arbitrary the rules are because it's, it's exactly like you say does the nun need a, a vessel like does she need to possess someone to carry out the evil deeds as we see multiple times or can it act independently as we see multiple times or is it does it have to summon apparitions as we see it do multiple times and on top of which you add there's a whole like da vinci code indiana jones historical yes, which, which honestly it amused me it amused me that i was like yeah, they have a there's a straight up like there's a raider staff of raw yes. sequence, right? <laughs> and, and so they're just popping that stuff into the script when necessary. It, it really feels like they're making the shit up as they go. And I, I honestly, I feel like it's that kind of goofiness that made me enjoy this movie more than I thought I might. It's like, I was already like, well, it, it must be at least better than the first. Cause like, I feel like what makes these sequels better is that they can take notes off because there's no, there's no stakes with these, right? I mean, these are movies purely made because the conjuring's popular. So it's like, Hey, money. We like money. Let's do that. Money. So when they're making a sequel, it feels like we'll just not do some of these things that these critics talked about and then we'll be better. And so by default, it's like better. Granted, I do think Annabelle Creation is really just a solid horror movie that does the job and has good stuff in it. It's more than just like a throwaway sequel. I think it actually tries to be something. This movie is more like well, if long we don't do some of these things we did in the first one, I think we'll be on easy street. And they honestly, they do like they, it takes away. Even though this film's like 20 minutes longer than the first movie, it like it finds its own stupid path to go along. Like you're saying, as far as having these random like adventure missions for the nuns to go on and do certain things and then introduces like other random like elements of terror, like a demonic goat and what have you. And it's like. All right, I just felt like I was down for this ride. I guess that's where I come down on this movie. Yeah, I guess so. Like when you phrase it that way, when you when you highlight the just the absurdity of it all, then I guess there's some pleasure to be taken from that. But I mean, my my issue though, and of course this being a sequel, and as you say, it's just kind of a soulless extension of, uh -huh. of formula that made the money, not what worked narratively or was rewarding thematically, but like just what makes money, and. And I mean, Peter, feel free to jump in because I feel like my comments and my complaints here extrapolate outward into like studio horror generally. I think the line I've used when we do our horror awards, Aaron, is that I feel like these films are not for horror fans. They're for people who enjoy being startled, right? They're just a delivery system for jump scares. And it's just about sort of meeting a certain quota of gotcha moments to feel like people get the roller coaster fix that they came for. Um, studio horror isn't always this sort of empty, but when it is I find it kind of contemptuous of its audiences. And then the reason I'm applying that to this film is because 
are the jump scares effective? Uh, I, I don't, I, I didn't find any effective, but what was objectionable to me is that it's the same trick over and over and over. It's center on a character, slowly pan away from that character. And then when you pan back to that character, something is behind them. That's it. Now, I don't know how effective this continues to be. There were maybe two dozen people in my screening, and I did not get the sense that any of them were biting their nails. But as for people like us who watch films professionally and are therefore in a position to like articulate what's not working in a film, mm. I think we're justified in just calling this out. It's incredibly repetitive and pandering. I hear so much of what you're saying. I do what I what what I can admire because like I again I agree as far as I didn't go home being like, oh, I'm scared now. Like it, it's not because of how clear the idea is for what the, what the jump is supposed to be it's like yeah you're not gonna you know you you know you know there's something gonna be coming it's like yeah none it's gonna do the thing again but I think the there's some creativity I think in the like presentation of it all which I can admire I feel as I hear what you're saying as far as what mainstream horror dares to satisfy and how it can apply to horror fans versus people that just came to you know get a jump in a movie. I do think that horror fans can suss out like details that make something work for them. And obviously there's horror fans that love the conjuring series. That's why there's a whole conjuring universe. It's not just people that like to be startled. I think there's all wide variety of fans for various reasons, whether it has to do with the actual, you know, praise for the Warrens or whatever, or just the, 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 the admiration of the history involved in it all or whatever. I think that there's a range of an audience that enjoys at least some of these films, specifically the conjuring ones, given that it actually involves, you know, quote unquote, true events. With this film, I, again, I, while I wouldn't say I was like, oh my God, this is bone shattering and scarifying. I do think like that, that, that magazine set up or like the use of a wall that like the nun is gone, but like the impression of the nun still in the wall, just like in the way it looks. There's just, there's some interesting production design, I think, going on here as far as what can we do to make this seem more interesting? I think there's stuff there that works. And honestly, Demonic goat. I'm all about that. That's fun. I don't get to see a demonic goat very often. Can we <laughs> talk about the goat thing? I mean, is that a spoiler? I mean, I've already uh, mentioned demonic goat. I don't know what I'm gonna. What else could be spoiled? I mean, <laughs> that, that it's, it's the devil, basically. Um, I mean, it's demonic goat. Yeah. What what else is it gonna be? <laughs> isn't it the devil? Like like the actual boss downstairs. I would think so, given that the de I mean, it's like a sub boss compared to the nun. So I don't think it's the devil. No. But I think I think they mentioned several times, like it's it's not a devil, it's the devil. And I was just wondering, why are we fucking around with this nun thing if Satan himself is on the scene? Well, that's why I don't think it's that. Like I don't think the the, the Satan would be the the you know the second level boss while Irene is dealing with the nun upstairs. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there is. I mean, there is. Um, there are moments when you can see the money on the screen. Yes, um, I think it's a good-looking movie. I would uh, not like, you know, revelatory, but I think it looks good. Yeah, I mean, there was there's a couple of shots uh, that involve the characters walking onto a busy street. I wasn't sure if it was Paris or what, but it's an urban space, and the period detail is kind of nice. And I thought, oh, this looks kind of expensive. But those moments for me were too few and far between. the The magazine stand scene is, I think, interestingly conceived, but I thought the pacing was pretty overlong and execution wasn't great. I, th I think that's somewhat by design because they knew the trailer would feature a version of that. So this is like an extended version. So you're not just being like, I just saw this for three months in a row in the theaters. Why am I so it's like, now it's like drawn out more. And uh, I don't know. Like, I feel, <laughs> I feel like that's a weird, like 
something about like how they set these things up where they know it's like this is going to be a big part of our trailer we got to really maximize what we're doing with this sequence and then like the way they change it around the editing but i, I hear you again like i i, I didn't look at that magazine sequence and be like oh i'm gonna get scared now i was just thinking okay here we go here's that thing that i've seen multiple times already in a trailer yeah, I think um, that reinforces my primary complaint, which is that this movie is just a setup and delivery system for for jump scares. Which, in addition to that, I thought the jump scares were all kind of lame and and sort of telegraphed in advance. Um, I think, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, okay, what I found rolling my eyes the most is as at how much this film ultimately upholds the goodness of the church. And its mission to vanquish all evil. And this then, is a like, very pro-Catholic movie, for sure. Yeah, and yes. like, we, we vanquish the evil. Let's call it a day. Um, and I think that that misses the mark completely because the reason I think the Catholic Church lends itself toward the horror genre, and I'm like on a superficial level, it's because you can draw upon demons and possessions and exorcisms, and that's all well and good. But it's also because the church, as an as an institution, is itself not unlike the nun in the way the nun worms its way into your life by possessing like a handsome handyman who spends an awful lot of time hanging around impressionable minors, right? Like the connection between these evil characters and the church is that if you if you filter this through the specific lens of horror, I want to make that clear. Um, it's a malevolent force masquerading as a benevolent force. Uh -huh. And I don't think you can get into serious conversations about the Catholic church and debate whether or not it's a force for good in the world and all that without addressing the extent to which the church has been proven to wield its power and institutional influence to protect its own secrets and avoid accountability on some actually horrific things. And so the idea that there's something like predatory lurking underneath all the rites and rituals and routines of the church is ripe for content, but not when it's in a film that has no interest in going deeper. Like this whole thing is so disinterested in actual history and actual institutions while then pretending to give just enough lip service to those institutions to frame and set the stage for a series of just the cheapest jump scares um, is the best example I can currently come up with um, of just an exercise and just pointlessness. I, I would say it doesn't do any lip service at all, which is why I was like, okay, so we're just not doing anything with this. Like, <laughs> I ask you a question. Yeah. So, okay, it's the same. What's the director's name? Michael Chavez. And so he did The Last Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. He did The Devil Made and... Me Do It, and he also did The Curse of La Llorona. Right, okay, I never saw Curse of La Llorona. I think I saw part of it, but I didn't finish it. But um, I I reviewed um, Devil Made Me Do It, and yeah. I, I enjoyed it okay, but I do remember there was some controversy when it came out that maybe it was like Katie Wright for the AV Club or somebody, but saying that like this is kind of weird because it's almost like a movie that is basically trying to sort of justify what we saw as you know the satanic panic era mm -hmm. and being like well maybe this person really was possessed and it's like is that a good message to send out so it's just with mike saying like it is strangely supporting the church i can i i can sort of see the problem there because i mean i do sort of see the problem that was there with even though i thought devil made me do it is i mean if you're not yes if you're not going too deep it's certainly entertaining enough, but it is like, well, wait, you know, are we kind of saying that this person who murdered people, we shouldn't, isn't responsible that it's like this, uh, it's this other thing. And like, I, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I mean, the, yeah, that, has, but the, yeah. Like, the fact that it's rooted in an actual true story, I think makes that more, more problematic <laughs> compared, compared to this movie where it's all like, whatever. But I do, I do hear Mike's point as far as, yes, it's it, like, there's, 
plenty of implications that could be cashed in more if the film didn't have its own seemingly agenda to not offend or at least in in, in towards one direction um i, I get it I, I it's way too thin to deal with i also to try to deal with anything to the point of being a disservice uh to, to what could be interesting as far as any kind of you know story on this topic goes well, well it's not also that i object to it being ultimately pro-catholic like if our hero is a a novitiate nun or whatever it is and it is ultimately the 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 depth and uh, poignancy of her faith that helps her overcome the and vanquish the evil at the end. Like, okay, that's a narrative arc. It's not the pro-Catholic Catholicism part of it that I object to. No, I hear uh, you. Yeah, it's it's more that the film has no interest whatsoever in exploring the the gender politics and structural dynamics of the setting that it is using as a delivery mechanism for the story, right? I think that I felt that the most with the um the sidekick character, the Storm Reed character. Deborah. Um I know we all care about representation and diversity on screen. It's so important, but a 1950s black uh, nun in uh, French France is a uh... Not well, questioned whatsoever. The thing is, yeah, no, the thing is, they make sure to include a scene in which she talks about being a victim and survivor of racial violence in the American South. In America, yeah. But then the film has zero interest in pulling that thread and exploring what it means for a woman of color to move through these institutional spaces, especially in the 1950s. And to me, that makes it tokenism of the worst sort. I mean, this there's a moment when this character, this African American woman, has a chain wrapped around her neck. And I thought, okay, a smarter film would either recognize the symbolism of that and do something with it or recognize the symbolism of that and say, no, we we don't want to actually invite any weird interpretation. So let's find another way to put her in peril. Like that to me is just how brainless this movie is. I mean, at that, that, that point, I already given up on thinking the movie is going to like try to hammer home any kind of points. Uh, like I, I hear what you're saying on the other end, as far as like the Maurice character and being this handsome handyman amidst all these preteen girls it's like yeah okay you and i think the movie wants to justify it as like he's being fatherly but it's like eh, <laughs> there's a, some lines that we're blending here but we movie. know in advance that he's possessed right because that's the big switcheroo of the first one so it's not as if, if you remember the nun you do i didn't remember the nun until i saw this character and was like wait a minute <laughs> what am i supposed to think about this and then i realized oh yeah i think that's what happened at the end of that movie and I had, to, I had to wait till I got home to confirm that I was correct about remembering mildly what happened in the nun. Uh, but yes, I mean, essentially, yeah, I mean, the, the the implication that you mentioned already, as far as just the presence of this person to begin with and the nature of the setting that he's in, it's like there's plenty that plenty that could be done that isn't. <laughs> like, I, the... I hear you. It's a very thin film in the realm of like trying to say anything important whatsoever. Is the nun meant to look like Marilyn Manson? I think there, I, honestly, I do think there's a purposeful androgyny to the nun character, which I I, I do think. That, all I could think about. What? That is all I could think about anytime the nun was on screen. Now, you, want, uh, you wanted to go to yeah. the dope show? Again, not having seen part one, I was like, huh, beautiful people. I I hear you. I do I do I, I do think that lends itself to the unique nature of the nun. Why the nun was so effective in Conjuring Two to give it to get it to have two movies on its own altogether. I do think there's something about this, you know, tall and gaunt and freakish smile thing going. On. Like there's there's a there's a quality there, and I think like lends itself to why you'd want to see more of just this character in their own movies. Which movies are better, but you know, you can't have it all. <laughs> 
actually have a an actual question, like a point of clarification. And this sure. is my fault for having seen the first one. Um, so the, the our main character, li, far, little little Farmiga, um, is she is her character meant to be of some relation to the Vera Farmiga character in the Conjuring films? Not as of yet. Yes, I understand that having the younger sister of Vera Farmiga in a film set before the Conjuring two, or before the Conjuring could easily make you think clearly there must be some kind of connection between these characters but the films have so far gone out of their way to be like nope none of thing exists between them so far so unless in the conjuring four or none three or whatever the hell else they do in this universe tries to establish some kind of you know lost connection between these two characters right now there's none no pun None. Uh, okay, I was wasn't sure if I missed something. No, I because I thought when the trailer for the Nun came out, I was like, "So Tessa Farmig is in this? Does that mean something?" And the movie's just like gone out of its way to be like, "Don't worry about it." <laughs> like, all right, fine, <laughs> never mind. So yeah, that's 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 what I have for that one. Uh, Mike, I, it sounds I, like I, um, I your stayed, I stayed through the credits because I was like, "Oh, there's going to be a a Vera Farmiga connection, like a like a Nick Fury moment." Oh yeah, they get, there's a mid credit sequence that you know does what it needs to do. But yeah, I mean, we'll we'll see. Do we know? Do we know what the next Conjuring universe movie is? Yeah, it's it's um. There's at least one more Conjuring movie planned. What's it called? It's um, the Conjuring Last Rites. That's the the next one. There's no director attached yet. Um, and you know, there's a bit of a strike going on, so it's probably not being filmed anytime soon. (laughs) So we won't uh, we won't uh, I think hear from that for a little bit. Can I ask? It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be the finale of these stories, I believe. Oh, okay. I got a question for um, uh, Mike. So, like, I I enjoy the Conjuring universe pretty much. Like, I don't think that they're. I mean, yeah, I think first Annabelle's terrible. I think Nun's terrible. I do think the sequels have been better. I like both Conjuring. Well, the first two, third one's okay. But um, you were talking about this notion of like you don't like a lot of. Sounds like you're like this is the kind of problem you have with like big studio horror films. And stuff, and I know that this conversation has come up recently, and obviously we're going to end up talking about an A24 or A24 movie. <laughs> but there's this conversation a few a few years back or whatever that started this notion of like, you know, A24 movies are like elevated horror. You know that it's like, and what they sort of mean, besides that they're very artfully made, and and I love a lot of A24. Like, I mean, I love Under the Skin. It's one of my favorite movies ever is that it's almost like in the era I grew up in when you have like the 80s slasher movies and then the 90s, or I don't know what that would be, but whatever. You could make an argument of like, you know, what are these what are these slasher movies about? Is it about sexual repression? Is it really about trying to shame like Tia? Whatever, you could go down this rabbit Reagan, Reagan era rabbit hole, but I never really know if the movies really have that on their mind. And then when you get to the A24 movies, it's like, no, it is very clear. Or the Babadook. It's like, it is very clear that the filmmaker is taking the subtext and putting it so much out there that most people will, most people that are going to see that movie are going to be like, oh, this is about generational trauma. This is about, you know, it follows or whatever. So I guess my question to you, I'm sorry, it's taking me so long. My question to you is, is that, are you, as a horror fan, is it that like these studio movies you you want you want the conjuring movies to be more like an A24 where it's like ah clearly what the nun 2 is about is about it's saying something about feminism in the 40s or something i don't know like is that what's bothering you or is it 
like, no, it can still just be a movie. You know, sometimes the monster is just a monster. Does that make sense? So I'm just wondering what you think of with studio movies and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I guess one way I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but you know, the, some version of that question that academics like me get is like, are you overthinking it? Right. Are you reading? Yeah. Are are you, are you looking for things that just, you know, this is a type of movie made at a type of scale with a certain type of um, set of priorities that don't really lend themselves toward that. And so um, I realize that I'm probably guilty of like, imposing upon the film a set of agendas that were never on the plate to begin with so that's true and and you're also right that a lot of times the kind of the trends and dominant sort of um overlaps between things that happen in a genre you don't really notice a trend is happening until sometime later right so when you say the slasher films of the 80s you're right i don't think and, and i've spoken with filmmakers who were making stuff at the time they're like no we weren't sort of actively trying to comment on reagan uh reagan moral majority type stuff it's just this was in the climate and we made films that felt real to us and a, a bunch of people later came on and uh gave it a name and gave it a set of of definitions right so it's a little tricky uh uh to know i mean maybe the nun 2 will in 10 years be a film people point to and say no this was actually doesn't make it a good film we're not making excuses for it but this is a film that definitely was keying into something that wasn't um evident to us at the time with the benefit of hindsight we can see why the nun 2 is actually quite exemplary of horror films circa uh the two the 2020s or post-pandemic horror like there, there might be reading strategies that emerge it's a very pro-female film as far as the main characters and even the monster in question yeah so there are things about it that seem kind of decade appropriate right mm-hmm. So I'm not saying in any way that th- this is uh, completely devoid of any avenue by which you could sort of analyze it and subject it to evaluation and in all these kind of interesting ways. But what I found most objectionable, uh, objectionable about it is that there, in my reading, in my initial reaction, which is kind of a raw immediately after having seen it, is that there was no real attempt made to even address anything. There's no there's no attempt made to be anything other than just a delivery system for jump scares. Right. right. Um, and and what's what's kind of weird about it is that especially for a film that purports to be about the power of faith, it has no faith or belief in its audience to extract or want deeper meaning from a film. You know what I mean? And so part of my objection is comparative. We're about to talk about Talk to Me, which I think is a much more thematically rich film. And so for a film like this to come out, um, in the midst of, you know, a dozen different films a year that are simply better and more interesting and more conversation worthy. Uh, I'm just growing increasingly allergic to films that you go in, you watch it, it's over, and then your your engagement with it is done, right? Because there's just nothing memorable about it. I'm not sure if that answers your question, but my my objection has well, more to do with sort of the, the laziness of it. No, I think, I think... Yeah, well, wait, well, I guess my question then, like, because it sounds like you know a lot about horror movies and stuff, you must have a lot of movies that you love that are, you know, the monster is just the monster. I mean, like, do you appreciate the Friday 13th movies or whatever? Well, I, I think mean, Mike has know, addressed I mean, that like, as yeah. far, I think Mike has addressed like, that to the point of, you know, noting, like, okay, if you're not going to do anything else that's interesting on a thematic level, at least be scary, and it's not even doing that. I mean, oh, that's true. Yes, yeah, no, no. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, if the, 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 pri- the priorities aren't to match itself to 
whatever you want to call it, more, you know, creatively interesting films that are coming out of smaller studios. It's purely trying to entertain on a kind of visceral level. And Mike thinks it fails in that equation. So it's like, you know, it's, it's not delivering on either form as far as it's not, it's not interesting and it's not scary. Right? So it's. Yeah. So th this would have been a, this would have been a way more succinct answer to Peter. And I'm sorry, it took me a while to get there, but obviously there's no one way to enjoy a film. Uh, there's no one correct way to enjoy a horror film. Right. Um, but there's a certain, not even an expectation, but there's a certain desire I have to have a film that delivers a certain set of like calories that I can munch on and think about. This film doesn't do that. Now, in its defense, it's arguably not a film that even sets out to do that. But what it does set out to do, as Aaron said, and as I said earlier, is to deliver the scares. And I, I don't think it does that either. And it doesn't do it while simultaneously and concurrently um, completely sidestepping really obvious low-hanging fruit for some kind of thematic depth or, or characters who, who, who uh, present themselves as larger than a series of actions and a series of scares. And so this is a film that just is frustratingly inaccessible and uninteresting on multiple levels, which leaves me no, you know, with the exception of like little things here and there, yeah, the production design and that one shot's kind of cool, but you know, whatever. Can I ask I mean, you, what did you think of- There's so much talk oh, wait, wait, of like- there's so much talk of like AI generated scripts right now. It's become kind of a, a go-to insult to say something feels like it was written by ChatGPT, like Paul Schrader just dissed Mission Impossible along these lines. And I don't really want to contribute to that cliche, but I feel like this is what a machine generated horror film will eventually look like. And, you know, I, I want to register my, uh, my, my uh, hesitation and my, I want to, my, my allergy toward that kind of thing. It gives me an itch. What did you, um just before we move on, just because uh it makes me, of course, think of James Wan, who, you know, does the first two conjurings and stuff. What did you think of Malignant? What did I think of Malignant? Yeah. Yeah. So as a studio horror film, um, my my memory of the experience of watching Malignant was that the first two acts, I thought I'm not seeing anything to really separate this out from just like run of the mill studio horror films. I like that it was R rated like a hard R. That movie takes a real sharp left turn in the third act, right? Into it does, just, yeah, it does, which is bonkers. That's, right? yeah, yeah, that's the point. Yeah, that's when I thought, like, this is bonkers, this is different, and this is, like, balls to the wall, whatever. Right, uh, this, this does this justify do. the first two acts, right? Right, so for me, it was a little too, a little too late. Uh, okay. I, I really liked how it just kind of went there, so to speak, right? It just kind of, we're going to go full bananas here. And Have I, you I seen Malignant more than once? I haven't. I I would say because it's it's only grown in my estimation. It's like me I too. Think, yeah, I think knowing where it's going in the third act helps. Yeah, I think when you watch it again, you you see more of what one's doing as far as it's not certainly okay. it's certainly hard much more off kilter in the third act. But there's a lot of choices being made in those setup acts as well that I think. But I think yeah, I think that knowing where it's going. Yeah, adds to the flavor and stuff. So to me, something like Malignant, it, to me, is a pretty good use of like a blank check studio movie from someone like, you know, like a James Wan. I don't really know if that has a lot on its mind. Like, I don't know if it does, but it's just like that. Out the I, mean, I, I can almost, well, it's true. I mean, I can almost guarantee, I'm assuming, Mike, you would agree. I can almost guarantee that even if I enjoy None 2 the way Aaron did, 
I would be very surprised if I'm like, oh, none too. It's it's just as good as Malignant. I would vibe. I'd be very surprised. I will like, note um, that I will note that Kayla Cooper has a story credit and screenplay credit on the none two as well as Malignant as well as Mathrigan. Oh, that's right. All right, Mike. It sounds like uh, mixed is the word for none two. <laughs> oh no, no. Otherwise, I. <laughs> but um, when should people Second go? Time was better than the first. When should people go and see the nun too? I, I think if you are a conjuring universe completist, then I guess you're facing some degree of obligation. But otherwise, I would say I'm a, I'm a hard don't bother because I think this movie will make you stupid. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. All right. Well, I thought this was an increase from the first nun. I I think I have it somewhere like the middle of the pack when it comes to these conjuring movies. Um, I wouldn't go say race out and go see it, but I do think once it comes on to Max, um, that's perfectly fine if you're interested in seeing more of what this universe has to offer. It's not an amazing movie, but it didn't bore me. I I, <laughs> I, had, a, I had an entertaining time with its kind of go for the flow attitude. So that's where I'm at with this. All right, let's move on. Let's get to our next review for Talk to me. Have you seen the group chat? You're doing it again tonight. Huh? Huh? No. Please. It's my mom's remembrance day. I just want to forget about it. Huh? Do it, huh? do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. I'll do it. Cannot go for more than 90 seconds. Am I clear? What happens after 90 seconds? <laughs> Don't want to stay. Light the candle to open the door. Blow it out to close it. Put your hand on it. Now say, talk to me. Okay, that should have been some of the trailer for Talk To Me. Danny and Michael Philippou are Australian filmmakers who have found huge popularity in the online world due to their Raka Raka YouTube channel, which is only which has over 6 million subscribers and videos that are have racked up over a billion views. Uh, they make a lot of action, horror, comedy shorts, and they are now here with their feature debut, which has proven to be quite the success for A24, having made 56 million worldwide off of under $5 million budget. The story is an original one. A group of teens have begun having parties where they gather around enjoying a process that a process that lets them get possessed by holding a severed embalmed hand. The main rule, however, is to never hold on for too long or else the dead will have a desire to stick around and cause havoc. You can guess where things go from there. Peter Paris, I am curious. What did you think of Talk to Me? I thought it was pretty great. Um, I... It... Yeah, I don't really have many notes. Um, I I think that you know what we were talking about earlier. I, I think that A twenty four this is this is a pretty perfect kind of movie for them, where it's like you definitely can dive deeper if you want to talk about what you think this movie is really about. But pretty much from frame that from, from the cold open, um, which doesn't seem to have anything to do with the main characters, there's just a vibe of like the performances and the script and direction really seem to have a good sync with like, you know, kind of like, I guess, like a Gen Z kind of teen new, like these, you know, modern or, you know, uh, kids these days. There's just a, just the way they're hanging out and everything. It just, it doesn't feel like 
artificial, but it's not necessarily like a documentary style. Like there's still an energy to it and everything. Um, and I really, I, I thought it really delivered when it needs to, when it, there is, you know, so, you know what, actually to um, make this a little quicker, even though I liked Hereditary, I did. I thought Hereditary was good, but it is no, no means my favorite of, of uh, Ari Aster's. When, I remember when Hereditary came out, a lot of people were talking about it in this way. I kind of felt that talk to me, there's a scene that happens with a youth in the... Oh, wait, we can talk about it, right? Because the movie's yes. been out for a while. So when the younger um, brother just essentially is like, I want to play this game, I want to do this, he tries to rip his eye out and things just go nuts. That scene was so much like, oh my God, like, where are they going? Hereditary, of course, has the scene where another little girl gets killed and it's just like a it's a totally random dumb car like thing and it, it, it's a very effective scene it is um but this i thought the way that it throws in like the guilt that the main character is now going to feel and the journey she's going to go on it was so effective and like so like palpable um like once that happens like before that i'm enjoying the teenagers i'm like ah this guy's an asshole this guy's whatever like they're entertaining but once you get to that, I was like, whoa. I was like, okay, like now I'm very much on board. Okay, actually come to think of it. If I did have a weakness, since we are talking more about it, I'm not quite sure. I love the main actress. I think she's terrific. I'm sorry, I don't know what her name is. Sophie Aaron, Wilde. do you know her name? Sophie Wilde. She's, she's terrific, and I want to I want to see more of her. Um, not quite, If strangely, if I have a criticism, I'm not quite sure the central mystery of her mom did her mom kill herself? Is it really her mom? All that stuff. I'm not quite sure I really care. Like, I think the actress delivers enough that I care. But really, it's more the connection to the young boy that really sets me on the journey. So I guess technically, I guess I'm kind of saying that the central premise is like just okay. But that's not that big of a deal. Like, it's just, I don't know. I thought it was so, it was really genuinely pretty scary to, you were just talking about Annabelle. You know, Annabelle is, yeah, Annabelle is just a, a doll that never moves. I mean, it's literally just this white pasty hand or whatever. Like, it doesn't really do anything. But, like, the way they use the sound design and edit, it's just, it's so we, we do see demons. I mean, like, we see. We see so demons. you do. Well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You do. But I'm saying the hand itself doesn't suddenly go, brah, or whatever. Like, it's still just, a, it's an object or uh -huh. whatever. Um, But, yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was, I'd be very surprised if Mike doesn't, think this is obviously better than none too no i'm kidding um but yeah i really i really enjoyed marginally, it like marginally <laughs> yeah. marginally well mike let's get to you what did you think of, of talk well, well can i i i suppose i'll be building off of what peter said but can i ask you a question because yeah. i i had a an observation along similar lines so the main character is dealing with the trauma of her mother has committed suicide and and it's it's unclear or why did she? right or did she right and so she's dealing with sort of a lot of questions a lot of guilt and that does seem just I mean from a screenwriting perspective, it does seem sort of um in line with the film's sort of treatment of trauma and guilt and and that kind of thing. Is is what you're saying that um the lingering question about the mother is just fundamentally less and less interesting given that there's a much more immediate, much more horrific sort of relationship uh, around guilt and all that with the younger brother character. So I when think we so, have, you know, Wrong oh, that relationship. Yeah, given how strong and visceral and impactful that side of things is, why are we still 
addressing this sort of comparatively less interesting question about the mom. Is that kind of a correct paraphrase? Yeah, I think that it's, I think that what they did was they need a jumping off point for why our main character holds on for longer than 90 seconds for why she even does this thing. Like we need something. So they're like, it's the two year anniversary of your mother's death. You know, you're in a weird state. Let's go from there. I'm like, all right, that's not bad. I was like, I get it. But you're right. We just, like, we literally spend time with the kid and everything. And we, you know, so there's, I have way more natural investment. So the mom thing, which also relates to the father thing, I'm like, eh. Like, <laughs> I'm like, there's no way they can drop it because it's like, well, you've set this up. So we have, that has to go somewhere. But yes, I'm just not as, yeah, I think, yeah, it, it, it might just, it could be the visceral thing. It could be just the attachment that I have to the actors that we're mostly seeing on screen way more. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, and and I'm, I'm going to echo what Peter said. I think so Sophia or Sophie Wilde Sophie. is, um, this is her first film, right? I think I remembered reading. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. Like that, that is such an amazing debut um, for any film, not, not just for a horror film. So I was quite um, delighted to, to kind of encounter this person. I over, I, mean, I like this film a lot. Um, I do feel I was maybe a little bit victim to its hype. I mean, like every now and then an indie horror film comes along that captures the culture's attention, right? And it's it's usually the result of like these concentric circles of like good reviews, good word of mouth, but also a strong publicity campaign, but also generally being like good movies. Mm-hmm. So like, I think someone name checked It Follows. Um, and of course, like another year is hereditary. And so I, I realize that sounds a little dismissive to characterize it as like a flavor of the month, but I do think that's kind of the box it belongs in because it didn't strike me as particularly brilliant or mind-blowing but as a sharp little indie film that that's also a debut film from these i guess co-directors it's superb and i hope it takes them places that's fair i mean that's on that's honestly where i'm at i just i i can't deny that it was effective in what it's doing and that i really like it i mean whether or not it falls into some like grander category as far as like horror films that really speak to what this specific you know arrow that we're in meant or what it like you know that's i don't care right now enough about that like what i what i got of the movie that i found to be rather effective i saw the movie in sundance in january by my you know by myself at home and i thought it was you know effective enough or what have you um but i was you know i was excited when it was finally getting released because i wanted to see it with an audience and so i did i saw it with the with an audience um during it you know, in early screening and was happy that it had such a strong response because the film does have a lot of visceral energy that it catches in on quite well. Um, friend of the show, Mark Hoban, uh, pointed out that um, Talk to Me is a film that shouldn't be forgotten when it comes to the sound categories at the Oscars because the sound design is particularly pretty excellent. And I would agree. I mean, I do, I do think the film, the, the Philippu brothers, from a technical standpoint alone, I think there's a lot of great stuff here. Like Peter, you pointed out how there's a sense of like naturalism, I think that really emerges in the teens, the dynamic or whatnot. And I think that's applies to the horror as well. I think there's, you know, there's, there's playing into certain conventions as far as it's a horror movie. So it has to be scary. And there's only so many ways to accomplish that. But I do think the energy that they bring to this film lends itself to appreciating so much of what you can get from an indie horror film where there's newer filmmakers that can you know just make certain kinds of choices there's a montage sequence in this film that just shows the intoxication that these kids are getting just from like these brief possessions that they have that i found to be really interesting and we can talk about the thematic implications that that comes with obviously as well but like 
just the the way it's able to portray a sense of joy out of something that's you know not good <laughs> not good for the soul um, is you know interesting and only to have it be counterbalanced by like the most horrific shit possible when it comes to self-harm like yeah okay i i like what this going on here i like what's being put on display and the way it's approaching the the violence of it all and making that seem intense and make you feel the pain like that's you know when you do that effectively it could be it's it's really effective um couple that with yes yeah, some strong performances and i think yeah there's a just a really solid horror experience here that plays to the audience has its share of fun as far as delving down into like where we can go with all of this adding a bit of introspection as far as like what the lead character is going through and then ends with a banger of a shot like the way it closes out it's like yeah all right that was awesome like it leaves you on a high as far as you know what's funny is i'll say that the the end the end um, and I, I really hope I'm not trying. I, I really don't. I'm, I'm not trying to sound like um, I'm I'm smarter than the movie guy or whatever. But like I remember, well, or that a critic ruined it for me. But I remember when I um, I read a review of The Sixth Sense, and it, I hadn't seen it yet. And the critic said something like, "Oh, Bruce Willis plays a psychiatrist, and then like um, who gets uh, attacked by one of his patients, like the." After that, the screen goes black or whatever, and there's a title that says The Next Fall. And I remember reading that being like, oh, wait, did he die? Is that what it is? I'm like, there's something about the, the wording of that is weird. To, to, the, to the Sixth Sense credit, by the time I got to the reveal, I had actually kind of forgotten that. Well, that's why, the, the, yeah, that's why well, the, well, I would say the same thing about Talk to Me, uh-huh. was that the opening, I was like, oh, well, obviously the end is going to be, wait, we can't talk about this, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was like, well, obviously the end would be that she's dead, and then it's like now she's the person that someone is talking to. But to the stories, to the movie's credit, I had kind of forgotten about it. So when it happens, I was like, oh my god, that's right, and it and it was very engaging and so so still compelling. It's also, I mean, that last that that ending bit, right, is is not just sort of compelling, and it's it's kind of a, a very earned finale. I agree, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it also struck me that these filmmakers uh, are, are very genre literate, right? Because they yeah. know how to create an instantly iconic image. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, like you said, it's a banger of a final shot, but even like that ceramic hand yeah. is yeah. recognizable. It's menacing. It's compelling with that. And it, it's, it's weird and contorted and it's like, but there's no explanation as to its origin or why it's painted in these weird, uh, uh, there's like language written all over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that I think that takes, a remarkable amount of restraint for filmmakers who are making their first movie where you want to like go for it and we may never get another chance to make a film so let's make something like big and loud and memorable but that kind of artistic restraint um i think i see all through the film so like i liked for instance that it completely sidesteps a stock character which you see in these movies all the time which is like the old lady who appears in the second act who can <laughs> know what's happening. this would be like the lynn shay character yeah She'd she'd have one arm and be like, oh, that's where that is. Let me tell you yeah. something. <laughs> like, I think it's great that they're generally happy to leave a certain percentage of things unexplained. Now, that could mean that this, I think, lends itself toward a franchise. I have no idea if A24 would ever want to do that. And and I would be skeptical. Well, they did. Of- well let me tell you right now. The, 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 the answer the, is yes. The answer um, is yes. There's a sequel in development. And they already shot the kind of prequel. Oh, really? They already shot like the prequel stuff that involves the characters at the beginning of the film. Because and it's called, and it's called "Talk to Me." Except talk the two to is, me. The two is, is now the 
the numbers than other numbers. Oh, too. really? Yes. Yeah. Huh. I am out of the loop. I thought he would have <laughs> talked to me some more. I think I think they look talk to me more. Yeah, keep, keep well, that'd talking. Be the, that, that'd be the third one. Um, yeah. <laughs> I I mean I <laughs> I like that A24 is getting into the horror franchise business because the you know after Ty West was like you know what what if we made two movies with X and, and um made three and Pearl and then they're like I guess, Maxine, we, I guess yeah. We should, yeah I guess we should complete that trilogy then now they're like <laughs> well these guys did pretty well we should make another one of these also the, the title itself is easy talk to me we got it baby like, we're done <laughs> so, they're they're embracing the sequel I guess. Well, I, I like that it's small in scale, and obviously, yeah. when you have sequels, there's a there's a, a an inclination to go bigger. Mm-hmm. I do think this could have easily been a body count movie, but instead, it's about grief and guilt and quite intimate relationships that are quite effective. And and the the quality of the performances are doing some heavy lifting in that regard, right? And that's what keeps it kind of relatable, right? And so, well, that'd make it tough if it was a body count movie, right? Because it'd be like you'd have to find like a lot of contrivances to like keep all these kids involved if like one of them keeps dying every 10 minutes which is i think why it follows also works pretty well too where it's like it's not there's not a hot there's there's not many but there's not many deaths in it follows it's just constant unnervingness and creepiness because it's constantly following micah monroe's character and so it's like you can't just kill off multiple teens like it'd be it it would be just a you know a slasher movie with nothing on its mind instead you have like this kind of scooby-doo mission that I think is the same and talk to me as far as, well, what if we, we have to explore, we got to figure out where this hand came from, how they dealt with it last time, whatnot. Like it finds other ways to get around, like killing off the characters instead just has them work as a group, which is, I think inherently helpful in getting us to stay on their side, even with the inner drama that goes on in between some of these kids. I think that makes it honestly more interesting. Well, can I say that like, um, I'm curious to see what Mike's thinking. I know Aaron really doesn't like the movie Moa to mention, and I'm, I don't really like it that much either, but I wish I did. This is a much better version of Smile. Like, it's another thing where it's a character who's obviously depressed, going through something that's, like, super traumatic. And and actually, I think, uh, what's her name, Bacon? Actually, is pretty good in so, uh, Smile. Yeah, but, Susie like, so, is it Cersei? Is that her name? It's, like, Susie Bacon, I believe. Or, Su- or is it Susie Bacon? Well, like anyway. Like yeah, whatever, go on. But, like, the thing with Smile to me was always that the concept is so ridiculous, the goofy face that they make. I really wish the movie had leaned harder into a final destination. We got to Scooby Doo this thing and just be kind of fun with the kills. And it, it doesn't, it really wants to take itself. Like it wants to be like the ring where it's like, Oh, it's very serious. And it's like, well, is it like, whereas I feel like this does earn it's, it's, it's like weights in seriousness. So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm all on board. It's funny. Cause um, I almost, I almost brought up smile in the Latin, the none Two review because of the way it's, a studio horror movie that seems to be trying to do more as far as the content of it, where it is a film about grief and guilt. That's the drive of smile and why things are, why the, why the damn things happening to begin with, it preys on the energy of that to begin with or whatnot. My issue with the film is just, it's boring. That's my problem with smile. (laughs) There's, there's a, a good chunk in the middle of that movie that just doesn't interest me. And that was my issue with The Ring. And I like The Ring more than Smile. So it's like, well, you're not as good as The Ring. A movie I already am not big on compared to other people. Well, this is this movie's not going to do anything different. Right, so right, right. By right. comparison, this movie, yes, it's small and, and focused in its own kind of way. And the, I think the there's a way to like take an inherent ridiculousness of it as far as like this hand and what have you and make that silly but instead yeah it takes it seriously but it also like i think the 
again, the use of teenagers and teenagers that feel like teenagers goes a long way in uh, helping this film out. I think that comparison to Smile is interesting because, I mean, if we're talking about, and, and maybe this won't become apparent to us until we kind of look back, we talked about this earlier, but, you know, we may kind of notice, uh, I mean, we are noticing an emergent trend and maybe looking back in some years, we'll notice how how thorough this trend was, which is the horror films that are, <clears throat> excuse me, concerned about uh, mental health and trauma and sensitivities uh, around those kind of things, um, which is definitely a linking point between talk to me and smile but uh and that's i think that's interesting that being said i i disagree slightly insofar as i think talk to me is simultaneously about a very different set of things um i i do confess i found the first half of talk to me more interesting and you'll have to forgive me i haven't thought this entirely through but it strikes me as one of the best films i've seen recently among many films that have come out in just the last couple of years about young people who are encountering horror through their overuse of social media. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, some of these, uh, some of these are supernatural in nature and others aren't, but um, in other words, so social media is social media use is the catalyst for these horrific encounters, sort of in the way that yuppies venturing into the countryside prompted yeah. these kinds of encounters mm -hmm. in horror film in the seventies. It's weirdly to me, the most believable aspect of the film, which is that these sort of these kids, Gen Z, accesses and reacts to things not in terms of whether it's safe or unsafe or morally hazardous or not but in terms of whether it will generate likes right and that that an experience is not a true experience unless it's captured on social media i think that's a really provocative idea and it there's a certain credibility to this film being directed by people who are also social media personalities in mm -hmm. in uh, an earlier phase sure. of this career in a way it's like old wine new bottle right because horror is always about transgression and people taking things too far and then paying for it. But this film did strike me as, a, as, as very smart in its understanding that social media is a platform that can glamorize and encourage risky behavior because it has this flattening effect and normalizes really troubling behavior as just the, it's the talk to me challenge, right? It's a trend. It's, it's, it's on TikTok. We all got to do it. And I think that stems from just the know-how of these filmmakers as far as, hey, it's something we know, let's write about that, as opposed to, we're definitely making a film that analyzes the nature of Gen Z culture. I, I think, like, that's subconsciously there for sure, but I do think, because when you mentioned the film being something of a flavor of the week thing, I can agree with that to a point as far as while there are clear, like, themes involving grief and guilt or whatnot, it does feel more like a proof of the fact that these guys know what they're doing as far as directing horror films. I feel like that's more of the case being made compared to wanting to specifically study certain ideas involving, you know, what these characters are going through or, you know, what the age they are you know, in. I, that just comes with the territory, I think, as far as the kind of film that they decided to write. But as far as what they're delivering on technically, I feel like that's that's the proof that they want to show. But yeah, no, I, I what you're what you're commenting on as far as the idea of social media being a major theme here. Yeah, I, I, I like the fact that it's it feels like it's coming out because that's just the nature of what these guys know. And they decided to write about it as opposed to being this, you know, condemnation or, you know, an outsider looking in and deciding to say, like, I want to say something about this specific idea. Yeah. And I think I would uh, there, there's no evidence, right, that they're uh, this is going to sound so horrible, but like there's no evidence that they're thinking that deeply about the thematic content. Right. To what extent I, are they 
I'll, I'll add that when I saw the film the second time, the directors were there. Um, they did a Q&A afterwards. And that's definitely the impression that I got, that they were like really just excited to make a horror film and didn't really, it didn't occur to them to have this kind of extra textual analyze, analyzing of like what the ultimate themes are or what have you. It felt more of a, we're writing what we know. Like, you know, that's that's what we're going with. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm. I think I'm responding to. So whether or not they have kind of a deeper vision, maybe that'll emerge. That's sort of sure. an auteurist tendency. Maybe if you talk if they to make... me, we'll yes. get more of that. Yeah, but what I think I'm responding to is that, uh, especially learning, I think after the fact that they're YouTubers, that there's an, there's an authenticity. Yeah. To this project that they're bringing to it, even if some of the thematic depth is just kind of incidental to the script they wrote. That sounds fair. Yeah, yeah I, I, I agree, agree with that. Yeah. And I was just also just a man, maybe. This has more to do with my age. I don't want to presume you guys' age, but like the fact I am old that... AF. Oh, <laughs> then maybe you'll sympathize with the statement. It's just what strikes me. And given how authentic the sort of teenage behavior in the film uh, came across is the, the fact that posting yourself on social media is such second nature that it comes with this total lack of self-preservation, right? No thought given to like whether you actually want a room full of people to film you when you're in a suggestive state. <laughs> right, right. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. I will, I will say, as an old, uh, I have a friend who's also, uh, you know, above above the forties range, and um, I told her about talk to me, and I was like, yeah, these kids, and it's essentially like you got to hold on for ninety, got to be less than ninety seconds. She's like, that's a terrible idea. Who would do that? I'm like. Yeah, I think they would in this age. I think they would, man. Like, uh, but she's like, that's I mean, that's, so, that's, that's, so so, that's a stupid idea. Why would you do that? It's like, and I was like, well, it's so believable. <laughs> that's, that's what's so believable about the opening scenes. Like, yeah, teenagers would go into this and, and think to themselves, oh my God, I'm going to let everybody film me. So I pray nothing embarrassing happens, but they're not right? thinking. <laughs> yeah. instead, instead of thinking the more rational thing, which is this is probably not something I want to be filmed doing. Like there's legit evidence that we're seeing things from beyond the grave when we hold this hand. <laughs> we should probably keep doing it <laughs> because, because the likes. <laughs> yes. Well, maybe this, this maybe ties to this question of you know if it became a body count movie, um, would that kind of skewer the the nature and then take the the plot into these implausible areas? Because why would the kids keep doing it? But I think that maybe is missing that the main conflict is really no different in terms of how serious it's being perceived by the teenagers as like, yeah, you know, we were doing the latest TikTok challenge and one of us accidentally got really hurt. Mm -hmm. right. That's, that's, the, that's just the depth of the engagement. That well, was, it, I mean, it's a combination of things, I think, right. It's a combination of one, exactly what you just said. And also, you know, there's a drug metaphor in here. Isn't there as far as the idea of, you know, it feels good to do this. It feels good to hold this hand, and get true, this true this this other this heightened state uh, that provides some kind of just euphoric sense for them that's clearly intoxicating because they they keep it's not like they do it once they're like well that was good they keep doing it like to the point of again they have a whole montage set to like the fact that they're doing it over and over again like uh, they keep getting they keep wanting to chase that high like yep. and then and then it gets taken to an to literally to an overdose so i mean it's it, it it's going for it. It's, it's putting it out there. Absolutely. Um, I feel like maybe I kind of want to compare it to like the Frightener. No, not the Frighteners. What's it called? Um, Flatliners. 
yeah no i think this is like a more this is like a more fun flatline it's because flatliners like god they're all depressed and they all have these bad they all they all these terrible traumas pretty terrible yeah all all of their pasts are like how did this group of people happen to get together (laughs) they all have these terrible ghosts in their past and they have no fun except for Kiefer because he's always having a good time in some form or another (laughs) Um, (laughs) these kids are like oh it was just a good time we're all smiling we're making fun of each other (laughs) one kid peed his pants and they're like you can't you gotta delete those videos like it's fun we're having a good time (laughs) (laughs) um but yes flatliners definitely i definitely thought of like just by nature of they get addicted to doing a thing that's clearly not the good thing to do that involves the afterlife yeah um so so i'd be curious what how you guys react to this i i so i like talk to me a lot but overall i did feel it pulled a few punches and maybe that says more about myself than it does about the film but um for instance you have a character who's trying to gouge out his own eyeball but is yeah visceral uh it it comes i think peter was saying like there's a real sort of pivot that the film makes it suddenly becomes really real but he stopped he's stopped short of doing so now i know i wanted to see that eye come out um (laughs) i sort of i see what you're saying I mean, I, actually, I mean, the the stakes are saving him, though. I mean, I I don't think it necessarily pulls it because well, like it, it has, because again, he then he mains the film even more later on in the shower or whatever. Right? I mean, like it 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 keeps punishing this child, <laughs> like it doesn't stop. Yeah. Well, let me give you another example. There's there's a, an amusing scene in which a character is sort of in a trance and he's sexually aroused by a dog. Okay. And you know the scene I'm talking about, right? And he just sort yeah. of like I don't know, swirls tongues around with this dog. I wanted to see like full arousal just i mean it's it's a moment that i think should have been pushed to extremes and i watch a lot of horror so i'm sure it takes more than the average person for to push my buttons but i couldn't help feel like they were pushing the right buttons but not pushing them hard enough so there was like a little yeah, bit of a- i mean you know what's so funny to me is that i i'll i will sort of counter not counter because i always like also extreme i agree um but like i if, if he had ripped his eye out, I'd be like, holy shit, they went there. Absolutely. However, the scene when he's at the hospital, I, from a practical point of view, I'm like, dude, he's hitting himself against the wall. He's on a slippery surface. All you have to do is pull him out of there. It'll take two seconds. Like, like she's just, oh my God, oh my God. I'm like, dude, just, he's a kid. He doesn't weigh that much. All you do is pull him away. I mean, there's so, that, there's I didn't that, understand there's that shock, why that there's would. That, there's that shock sense. And because I, and, Sure, the first time, but once he's gonna try it again, just move him out. Of I there. hear you. I, I, I mean, like, I, I yeah. because I'm I'm exactly the person in the audience that's saying you gotta get up and move him. I'm shouting that out, <laughs> yeah, I'm right. shouting that exactly. like that's entirely. Right. Yes. But I also think that's by design of a movie. I mean, I, right? No, I know, I know, I know. Um, I yeah, how are yeah, you I, how are you disagreeing just, with Mike? I'm trying to understand. Like you're saying, it's easy to get well, out well, of it. Well, it sounds like well, no, no, no. I'm agreeing with Mike that I do want the movie to to go even further. But I'm also saying the moment that shower scene to me, I'm like, eh, like, I don't think that scene should be as violent as it is because I, I think saying. from a practical per- way, it wouldn't happen. I mean, you could, again, that's how they designed the scene. They could have designed yes, the scene in a way I, that it would not occur I, I, to I'm me, still arguing, right? I mean, you want to root for the child to survive. And so I don't want to- Of course, I, of course. I, I hear what you're saying, Mike, as far as you want, you you desperately hate this Riley character so much that you wanted to murder himself so badly. <laughs> uh, but but I, I want to root for him to come, not only come away with this, but, you know, have his body intact to some degree as well. 
Is there a part of me that wants to see this little child take his eye out? I mean, yeah, I guess so. But I mean, at the same time, I, mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, I want to be able to root for there being a plausible outcome that does not like, the, you know, he may have survived the war, but he's still like this, you know, this handicapped for life, terrible situation kind of child, all because, you know, so Mia wouldn't let the kid remove his hand for 90 seconds. Wait, listen. I'm I'm I mean, totally fine. I do, I do think that I want the, him to come through. I want Riley to come through. Okay, I'm just saying, like, if he loses an eye in the process, eh, you know, he's got to. <laughs> That's his pound of flesh. I mean, like, you know, I do, he's I do have, think that yeah, I do think like, the, the, there's a lot of <laughs> ramifications of all of this that extend to you know maybe not delivering on the you know the bloodlust that Mike Dillon has, but in terms of I mean, like Mia's father. Like she kills her dad. Like I mean, like I don't think it's pulling too many punches as far as the oh, like, the horror. The true, horror, the and actually that's that... a pretty good, it's a pretty good moment. Yeah, that yeah. Um, I forgot about that. Isn't he alive? And and when the friend goes to investigate, he's like barely holding on. Oh wait, yeah, uh, he... he is. Wait, so they, wait, does he not die then? I mean, maybe he dies, but I, I feel like the last we see him, he's just sort of sputtering and holding on for dear life but yeah it, yeah you're right the, the impact of the scene is the same right the effect it has is the that, same yes but yes but actually so so when you guys mentioned the hospital scene i didn't realize at first you're talking about that second round of, of self-harm yes. in the shower uh-huh. i thought you were going to talk about a different scene that i think maybe i should have brought up earlier because it keys into where i think this movie is pulling its punches a little bit it's a scene in which um the main character like looks into the other realm or the upside down or whatever it is and uh-huh. sees that his his soul is being tormented by all these rays. Yeah, he's getting oh. he's getting event horizon in the he's other universe. Event <laughs> yeah, he's getting event horizon. Right. But, but so that's the that's the apt comparison because it's nowhere near as effective as event horizon. I did not get the sense that his soul was just being ripped apart and violated repeatedly by this fleshy mass of demons. Like because I don't like, think you can handle I don't I don't think the movie like it's there's there has to be still a sense of fun and engagement in here where i think if you go too hard on that stuff especially at a child, the the youngest character in this in this movie sure it can satisfy the the terrible mike dillons of the world but i do think there's an audience <laughs> factor i think there's an audience pleasing factor that is why this movie has been successful as it has if it's just nonstop oh, okay, terribleness yes. for these characters i don't th- i don't think it i don't think it's able to get away with being a you know a, a crowd pleasing horror movie which i think it is speaking on behalf of the sick fucks of the world <laughs> I, I do think you're no you're you're right there there's there's a point at which too much is too much but I think that scene in particular is one that had to have a little bit more punch than it did so that we come away with just the stakes of it right this kid is being just tormented deep down in some some like netherworld and the way they shot it the way they edited it, just it didn't quite have it didn't have to go full event horizon right but I felt like having uh, an image like the visions of hell stuff from event horizon in my repertoire i thought nah i think this uh this could have sold the idea that like the urgency with which we need to intervene because this kid is suffering in a way that's unimaginable i didn't quite feel that and well i can i think i I, can, we... I hear you it's you know it's been a month and a half since i've seen it so i don't have like a direct feeling of like what that looks like but i i can I can hear you and while not forgiving the film for it, I can chalk it up to just, you know, the directors making certain choices. That's like, yeah, it's not maybe one of their more effective ones in a film that overall is very effective. Yeah, I'm 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 team talk to me. Yeah, I hear you. I get that. Uh, a couple places where I thought like mm, maybe like a like a millimeter more. A quarter I, inch I, more. I, I mean, like I hear you, too. And like while I don't necessarily need 
some of what you're saying. I can I can appreciate the idea that yes, as first time filmmakers, you know, they make their choices, and I wouldn't say this is a perfect film by any means, but I think it's a rather effective one. I I would say like the stakes involving Riley did work for me personally. I can say that. Or sister Irene when you need her. <laughs> or father uh, Russell Crowe from Pope's Exorcist. Uh, there's that's a crossover we need, by the way. Sister Irene and and, uh, and father Russell Crowe uh, to tackle like, demons like, together. Like an Avengers with the like yeah. non Avengers. Yeah, but, and like age age up Sister Irene, and then that you can join the Warrens and the Conjuring, and then Russell Crowe comes in on his motorbike, being like, "Beep beep, hey guys, it's me, Pope's Exorcist. I'm here. Help." Anyway, back to talk to me. Um, <laughs> anything else um, you want to go over as far as like what this movie's doing well or or whatnot? I had a question. Yeah. Just a, a plot point question. I was a little unclear. At the end, mm-hmm. what's the main character's name again? Is it Mia? Mia. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Mia uh, goes down to the highway and she becomes the victim of a of a car accident, right? I wasn't clear whether she jumps or was pushed into traffic. Like by the demon or something? No, like, by, I don't... by Riley's over, older sister. By the sister. Um. I think it's vague, uh, but I wouldn't think it was the sister necessarily. I think I, I read I, I read something that just sort of kept, oh yeah, and then at the end she's uh, she's pushed, and I was like, wait, really? That wasn't the reading I got from yeah, watching. I, the I, I don't I don't think it's any either. of the friends that are doing that. I I, I think it's more it of yeah, it's edited in a way that's ambiguous, and I wasn't clear if, if there's supposed to be a correct um, uh, version of events that I just simply missed. So I was wondering if you knew. Yeah, I don't. I don't think the movie gives me enough to think that she would go that far as to pushing Mia into the road to save Riley. I feel like there's more of just the, a culmination of things that led to her just essentially falling based on the, the situation. Uh, right. term. I mean, I wonder if the ambiguity is the point. You know, it's. it's, a, it's I think a it's part of the points, and I do. I think you could argue self sacrifice as far as it brings things full circle with her mother, and she's doing it for the right reason as far as saving Riley's soul or what have you. I think all that kind of adds up in its own way i would agree oh uh good mom performance by miranda otto by the way the one actor in this movie it's like been in things uh, i think she does good mom performance um there's a bit of like attitude oh she she... is good yeah 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 that's right she's a war of the world yeah where the the, the, uh, she defeats the the nazgul and (laughs) return of the king um because she is no man um sorry i frankenstein we forgetting i frankenstein yeah, we're forgetting I Frankenstein. If um, you know, not all of us can recall hey. I Frankenstein so clearly hey. as you can. But yeah, no, I, you know, she's got like a bit of attitude with the teens. It's like fun, and then like she becomes like you know, obviously super caring for Riley. Uh, all right, well, I think we've talked pretty sufficiently about Talk to Me. The movie, I think it's still in maybe a few theaters, but it's been out for a while at this point. But you know, regardless, when should, Peter, when should people see this movie? Oh, I think that if you're a a fan of horror, and I, and I personally always think that, like, um, even even the more silly like ones, I think horror is always much better with an on audience. Um, so I think you should still see it because it's in theaters. So yes, I guess I I guess from a money point of view, I'd say either see it now while it's in theaters, or then wait. I don't know what what is what is a twenty four typically on when it goes to stream. Do we know besides paying for it? Shows are like. Showtime. Okay. Yeah. Um, so then, yeah. Then I wait. For Showtime that. or Netflix. It varies because it just writes. Right. It's, it's not right, as clear right, right. cut. You know. Like it's it's universal. Like Jesus, it could go to Peacock. Honestly, like it's it could be all over the place. Um, but yeah. Okay. You're saying go see it. So obviously there you go. Mike, what would you say? Same. Yeah. I I don't know if it's 
how many places it's playing. But like I echo that it's it's fun to watch with a group. And I think this is probably going to end up being among maybe the three or so horror films you can't miss this year, if only to be able to participate in conversations about it. Um, American horror, anyway, I should say. Well, Wait, what are you just curious? What? Are, oh. Technically it's, ones... technically, it's Australian horror. For one oh, it day. is Australian. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> oh, right. what, which one? Which ones are you thinking of? Ones you've already seen, or are you also thinking like Exorcist Believer? As far as conversation, we have no idea if it's going to be good or bad. But oh, well, well, Five Nights at Freddy's is going to be amazing. Um... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Uh, but no, I'm kidding. Um, are you asking me like what other horror films I thought were memorable this year? When you said, well, you said the, you're saying the, the top two three, three, or what are the yeah. other two? So what else were the other two? Oh, I, I was just being kind of uh, being generous, and like when when we do our year end wrap up, I would say I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up on um, okay. a lot. Of but I don't know, Infinity Pool. Go see that, you know, side by oh, side. That's good. Yeah, I like that. I like yeah, that. Go, go see the go see the the three to be Infinity Pool, Talk to Me, and Haunted Mansion. That's right, all three of those. You can knock those I out. Did not see scarifying, not scarifying threesome right there. I thought uh, Scream Six was pretty fun. Not, it's not really scary, but I thought it was better than five. So that's something. Aaron, did you? What did you end up doing with um, Angry Black Girl and her monster? Well, I really liked it. I thought it was great. I was. You were uh, like up on it, right? yeah. Yeah, I was a big fan of it. Happy to happy to see right, it. Happy day. Also interview the director. It was great. Three uh, films. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's 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 slightly better than Haunted Mansion. Um, a ghoulish delight, some would say though. Um, <laughs> and talk to me by the way, theater. Go see it when you can. See with an audience. It's a lot of fun. Uh, good stuff. Yep. All right, we got to move on. Let's get to what what time is it here? Actually, it's it, uh, it's it's time for some games. That's right. That's the improv theme for games. And I have a game. Is is the answer to every question going to be Sister Act back in the habit? <laughs> don't, don't think I didn't consider a game that was going to revolve a lot around Sister Act in some form or another. But no, this game is called Conjure This. It's a series of trivia questions involving the Conjuring universe. I'm going to ask said question. If you think you know the answer, say your name and the answer. Here's the first one. Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga have appeared in every Conjuring Universe movie. True or false? Uh, Peter. Peter. Every Conjuring movie, not Conjuring every, Universe. I specifically said Conjuring Universe. Uh, true? No, that is not correct. Mike, what's, what's true or false? I might have gone false. Yeah. Um, Wait, which one am I, for, what am I forgetting? The answer uh, is McGrath. false. Uh, they are not an Annabelle creation. I'm going to need you to break down what are the films in the Conjuring universe. Conjuring Everything, one, I'm not counting the Curse of La Llorona. So yeah, Conjuring 1, 2, 3, None 1 and 2, Annabelle, how many Annabelles are there? Three. And that's it. There you go. You've done it. Okay, so the, the oh, I got confused. Not, right? No, that's, go ahead. Well, no, because that's Insidious. <laughs> right, but that's <laughs> yeah, the different. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. yeah, but that's it, not a James Wan project. But that's that's where I'm confused. Not a Conjuring yes. universe. Okay. Yes, I just like confused. just like how the thing is not in the Halloween universe, Mike. That's how it works. Sometimes directors make other movies. No, I was confused. I thought you meant. I thought you meant just the ones that are called Conjuring. So well, like, that's no, why I said in the question the first time, Conjuring universe. <laughs> no, okay. Did oh, it never yeah, occur to you? Did it never occur to you that the thing could take place in the same universe as Halloween? Did it never occur to me? If you I'm want, to, if you want to support that statement and draw this out, we can do that. <laughs> I'm just saying it's, it seems like an oversight on your part to not even entertain yeah, the possibility. It's, it's, it's Dark yeah. Star is not is is the same universe as uh as Halloween. 
right. as the ghost of Mars. Okay, Pixar being in the same universe for every film, Mike over here. Let's move on. <laughs> you, I'm barely giving you that point since it was a yes or no. But here's the next one. Annabelle has appeared in every Conjuring Universe movie. True or false? Peter. Peter? No, false. I mean, she's not in The Nun. Well, wait, I don't know if she's in The Nun too, but I don't think she's in The Nun. I need an answer. <laughs> no, the answer is false. No, no. Okay, you were correct. False. Okay. She, you're correct also. She's not in either Nun movie. It would be, you know, could could have been. Would have been surprising. Okay. Probably a bad time to to mention that I've seen like two of these. It's not because it doesn't matter. <laughs> you can you can figure, you can suss out some of these answers. Well, I think I'll, my strategy is going to be to let Peter answer and then pick up the pieces if he gets it yeah, wrong. Yeah, you got you got the you got the <laughs> first one. So. All right, next question: What is the highest grossing Conjuring film at the domestic box office? Peter. Oh, sorry, guys. I, I well, nine two is moving. Sorry, can I, can I go? Am I okay to go? I heard Mike. Yes, go. I, I think you gave it away, or you said the Nun One is the highest-grossing Conjuring film, Conjuring Universe film, right? Thus prompting the sequel. What's your answer? The first Nun. Incorrect, Peter. Peter, no, it's it's because you said domestic, right? Yes, I did. Right, because the nun is like 368 worldwide. I I want to say it's Conjuring 2. That's mine. Also incorrect. It is The Conjuring. The Conjuring is the highest domestic grossing oh. film. 137. Um, wait, what did Conjuring 2 make? Less. It's like 101 or something like that. Oh, okay. All right. Fair this feels premature. It could be none too. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> Back in a month. It, it had a lower opening weekend than the first nun. And as you recalled correctly, the first nun is the highest worldwide grossing film in the Conjuring universe. Here's the next question. Which Conjuring universe film had the largest budget? Peter? Peter. I, I thought I just read that um, I thought I just read that Nun 2 is like 40 million or something. So that sounds pretty high for a, a Conjuring universe movie. So the newest one, Nun 2? Incorrect. Mike? Okay. For the steal? Mm, Nun 1. <laughs> also incorrect it is the conjuring 2 uh none 2 is like 38 the conjuring 2 is 40 million oh pretty close but yeah, yeah they, okay. they went to london uh, the big they had to be all those kids you know i pay everybody well i am winning this game so far guys so <laughs> here's the next one true or false every conjuring universe film was released during the summer peter peter i'm gonna say well i'm wrong with it i hope i'm right i'm gonna say false you're correct. It is false. Annabelle was released in October. Yeah, because I was like, I feel like one of the Annabelles. You were saying only Annabelle one or all the Annabelle. Only Annabelle one was released in October. Okay. Here's the next one. What is the highest rated Conjuring film on Rotten Tomatoes? Hmm. Let's assume when I say Conjuring film, I mean the universe. Okay. Mike. Mike. Just the first one. That is correct. It's the Conjuring at eighty six percent on Rotten Tomatoes. You're, right. You're good. Yeah, that's the highest rated film. Next one. What is the lowest rated Conjuring film on the Rotten Tomatoes? Mike. Pete. Mike. Okay. Third one. Sorry. Third one. Incorrect. Oh no! I did the just the Conjuring series. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Trying to make this as clear as possible. <laughs> this is impossible. Peter for the steal. Uh, Peter. Uh, the Nun. The first one. Correct. It is the Nun. Yeah. Yes. Twenty-four percent. What does the new one have? None two? 
Nun 2 has, I think, like, rather high. It's like 46% or something like that. <laughs> so Nun 2 twice as good as the first one? Is that what we're led to believe? <laughs> Basically, yes. Hold on. Let me, let me see. I forget what it was exactly. It's like the same on Metacritic, too. Like, it's like the same numbers. Uh, 45% currently on Rotten Tomatoes uh, for Nun 2. Um, okay, next one. Where am I? What is the longest film in the Conjuring universe? Peter. Peter? Uh, Conjuring 2. I think it's like 220 or something. That's correct. It's Conjuring 2. It's 134 minutes. It's a long movie. Yeah. A lot of time spent with those kids in England. Because we needed that Patrick Wilson sings Elvis sequence. That's that's what uh, drags that movie out. Here's the next one. What's the shortest film in the Conjuring universe? Hmm. Hmm. Mike. Mike? I'm just gonna the there's so there's two Annabelles or three Annabelles? There's three Annabelles. All right. The the middle Annabelle. Annabelle creation is incorrect. Peter for the steel. Peter. Hmm. There's Annabelle, Animal Creation. What's the one with the dark? What's the third one called? Annabelle Comes Home. Um, and I, I do think none, the first none is not very long, but I'm going to go with Annabelle Comes Home. Should have stuck up your instincts. It is the none at 93. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, which one did you say, Annabelle Comes Home? That's 106 minutes. It's kind of right in the middle. Uh, the first Annabelle is 99 minutes. It's the second shortest film in this series. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but these all... Conjures range pretty... They go pretty high for like horror like this because the first one's like 100... It's 112 minutes. Second one's obviously super long. Creation's 110. Third Conjuring's 112. Nun 2's 20 minutes longer than the Nun 1 for some reason. Um... <laughs> We needed all that time. Um, that's all. Of the, I have a tiebreaker question, but there's no tie here. So, um, but I'll let's do it for funsies anyway. Um, here's here's another here's the here's the last question. What is the current worldwide box office total for the Conjuring universe, including La Llorona? Whoever's closest will get this. Who so, Mike, why don't you, you go right? first? Yeah, no, it's not Price is Right rules. Who goes first? Mike, why don't you go first? I'm hung up on the question, is it over a billion or not over a billion? And Oh, I'm, yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. I'm going to say uh, just over. Um, So 1.2 billion? 1.1 billion. Okay. Peter? Ish. I guess I'll go lower. I'll go... Wait, what did you say? 1.1? I just went 1.1. I'll just go a clean billion. Wow, you guys are... You, you don't get how a nine movie cinematic universe works it's 2.28 billion whoa 2.21 billion sorry 2.218 billion yes these movies make money that's why they keep making them guys come on (laughs) (laughs) sorry here i was assuming that a billion dollars was like a lot of money the nun one made 365 oh right so that's already 30 percent of a billion yeah you're right i didn't think of that like these movies, they, they that's why there's all these movies. They're making them. They're making the bank. It's insane. Like if it's just um, North America, or, yeah, nor if it's just North America, it's at seven seventy. But no, worldwide, you know, people people like these Conjuring movies. They're doing the so job. again, again, none two might cross it over domestic to a billion. You're, uh, you're, we have to check back in a month. You're right. Yes, we'll have to check back in a month to see if it if, if it gets that far. 
With all that said, Peter, you are the winner of Conjure This. Woohoo! Good job there. Way to go. Okay, now let's get to some out now feedback. Feedback, feedback, feedback. Thank you, Mike. All right, this is where we go with various questions, questions and answers on our Facebook page. Facebook.com says on our podcast. We answer a number of questions to the listeners, and they gave us some answers. Then we got some questions as well. Uh, Mike, Peter, feel free to throw in any answers you might have as we go through these. First question we have here. What are some great films featuring characters living under religious vows? Chris Cleland has The Devils. Adam Gentry, friend of the show, has Beyond the Hills. Irene Johnson writes The Nun Story. Scott Mendelson, friend of the show, has Keeping the Faith. Philip Hurd has The Mission. Some great films featuring characters living under religious vows. Uh, you know the one I want to say? Ah, what's it called? And ironically, Aaron always teased me about this. I didn't finish it, so this is actually weird, but I, but I really felt like it was really great, and it was one of those movies I just put on really late. It's the Scorsese one with uh, Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield. Silence? Yes. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah, see, well, that counts. So I was like, oh, I mean, that's very much what you're talking about. So, yes. Um, I'm a big Berhoven fan, so I, I really liked Benedetta a couple years ago. All right. Um, first Reformed? Sure. sure. Classy. I'll throw Frailty out there. Oh, yeah, nice one. All right, next question we have. What are some scary films based around religion? Christopher Hill has The Wicker Man, the original, Stigmata, The Exorcist, and John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Todd Lieben, our friend of the show, has The Exorcist, The Omen, and Deadly Blessing. Arian Johnson writes Frailty, Midsommar, and The Wailing. And Philip Hurd writes The Vich. Scary religious films. <laughs> the Vich? Vich Vich. <laughs> it's my favorite artisan sandwich shop. Slash folklore horror film, yes. <laughs> I agree. Well, wait, isn't The Exorcist like the ultimate... Can we not say the exorcist or something? I mean, I mean, it came up already, and it came up twice in the answers. So yes, you can say the exorcist. <laughs> I mean, oh, sorry, I guess I didn't hear that. Part. Um, well, then we are. What's another one? Uh, I'm I'm generally of the opinion that um, like true human depravity is scarier than some made up demon. So I'm going to go with Magdalene Sisters. All right. Hmm. Or Holy Spider, for that matter. I can't. I can't. I can't think of. Uh... It's all right. Just shout something out if you think it's open. Okay. Um, next question we have here. What are some great films featuring boarding schools? Irene Johnson has Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, Suspiria, and X2, X-Men United. Chris, the full range there. Chris Cleland has The Devil's Backbone and Phenomena. Todd Liebenau has Toy Soldiers. And Philip Hurd has Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. <laughs> I like the specific choices in Harry Potter films for this question. Wait, can you re re tell me the question again? Boarding schools. Favorite films of boarding schools. Oh, so we're not in horror right now. We're just sort of... We're in films in general. General. Dead Poets? Is that a boarding school? Is it? Is it just like a private school? Yeah. No, they like live there. I feel like that's kind of... What's a boarding school? Let me ask that question. I mean, the word board... And that makes me think it's like when you actually go away to school and you live there and everything. Okay, that's it's fair. Like high school. Yeah, okay. It's funny. It's funny. I thought... I was like, well, I know the answer is not Dead Poets Society because I think it it, it fits in the it fits in the category. I just don't really love that movie, um, but Fair. but Mike yeah. does like yeah. Um, and then Harry Potter, yeah. I mean, there's that is kind of the ultimate like kids at a school like thing. How am I not thinking of another? There's like there's so many school um, ties. Oh yeah, that's right. School ties. Uh, school ties. The movie where Mike. The movie's fine, but I only like the scene where Brendan Fraser stands in the ring going, cowards! I got a, I got kind of a weird one, and I think it counts. 
uh, what is it called? The Black Coat's Daughter. Yeah, there you go. Good example. Yeah. They live there, and then they have to go home for the winter. Some of them do. Right. That's the whole... <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, good, good answer. Next question. What are some memorably creepy old buildings from movies? Brandon Peters writes, The Sith Citadel on planet Exegol, where the Emperor Palpatine resides in Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, totally that's from Brandon Peters, who constantly likes to reference the rise of Skywalker whenever he can. Um, because he knows I'll read it. Uh Tadaluda has the Bates House and Psycho. Chris has uh, Session Nine, the whole uh, oh, yeah. mental facility in that in that movie. Uh Philip Heard has the orphanage in the Devil's Backbone. Creepy old buildings from movies. Oh, I mean, I don't know the name of it, but you know, oh wait, duh, that's the name. Crimson Peak. Where that's the name of the house. That's too, the name right? of the house. Yes. That... It's like Crimson Manor yeah. or whatever. It's, it's Manor. Kind of... Yeah. That's a that's pretty good. That whole set design, that whole place. Yeah, pretty pretty effective. No, that that's a great answer because I was trying to think of like, is it Mandalay from Rebecca? But but that's essentially the same vibe. Yeah. Um big old house. Yeah. Spooky yeah. under yeah. vibes. Yeah. Sure. The Hill House, obviously. <laughs> the haunting. Yeah, haunting and also um the Amityville house. Mm. those like iconic windows that look like eyes you know yeah the yeah. windows are pretty great so, even I, the myers house said that argue like that's it's oh yeah um, or even like you know any halfway decent adaptation of great expectations sure yeah uh, all right well if we're going that far then i would almost say because he they it's like, <laughs> i'm not imposing are... limits here you can go as far as you want to if you want to, well, I mean, they, you want to talk about wherever like Nosferatu lives, you could go for it. Like, they, in in Sunset Boulevard, the moment Joe Gillis gets to the house to hide his car, uh-huh. he's like looking at this old tennis court that hasn't been used in decades, and he's like, "There's a whole Miss Mrs. Miss Hammersham vibe." So they're referencing mm-hmm. Great Expectations, and of course, you know that is um, which we call Norman Desmond, like old mansion, and I would mm-hmm. say that's a pretty great creepy. Like it's not a horror movie. Well, I mean, I'm not asking for it to be a horror. I'm just saying creepy old buildings. Right. That's all. So that's that's. I think that's another good. Uh, okay. Good. I, I will note. I, I had someone point out to me. So this isn't my observation, but someone pointed out that Sunset Boulevard is one of the greatest vampire movies of all time. That's I've heard that before, and it, I always think it's it's funny, but it fits. Yeah. Yeah. Too well. I agree. Next question. Name some great jump scares. Chris writes. Well, obviously, Rick, the attic sequence, and most of the autopsy of Jane Doe. Todd has large Marge and Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Christopher uh, Hill. Christopher Hill has Rear Window and Wait Until Dark. Good answer. Philip Heard has the basement scene in Zodiac. He has a great jump scares. The Descent. <laughs> yeah, sure. Since we reference It oh. Follows a number of times, I'll reference that. That one, the big tall man comes out and It Follows. It's like, oh, that works. That got me. Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, I will say, I know it was they they had it in the trailer, but I mean, just bringing us back to Conjuring, the clap clap. That's pretty good. With in the, she's is she going in the attic? No, in the at the basement. The basement, yeah. Yeah, that's I, pretty good. It's good. I, my my problem is that I fucking saw that trailer so many times. I just I know something for me in the movie. <laughs> so it's like I know, I know, I agree. Like, but I mean, it is it is pretty well done. It's a yeah, really it's, it's a than, great yeah. sequence. I just wish I didn't get spoiled by it so many times before I, I actually saw the movie. Yeah. <laughs> right, agreed. There's a jump scare in Sinister that I thought was really great. It's a it involves a lawnmower. A lawnmower one, yeah. That's a good. And then like Jaws, the the jump scares in Jaws. Oh, yeah, or Jaws, Jaws works. It's Jaws. All right, 
the last question what are your favorite conjuring universe films chris cleland has definitely my favorite is the conjuring luke thompson has the nun one scott mendelson has i know scott mendelson what? has annabelle comes home uh billup writes i've only seen the first one so that's it i like annabelle creation that's where i stand that's that's where i'm at with these movies do you like annabelle creation do you feel like i i mean the one i've seen the most is the conjuring animal creation and comes up both good. um yeah i'm gonna i will say it's funny if you had asked me this when the conjuring 2 came out i actually would have said the conjuring 2 because there was a lot i really liked about the, the conjuring 2 where i was like wow they're really expanding on this and like every but for some reason it, i i've only seen it like twice so i'm gonna go with the first conjuring and mike you're all about the nun 2 right now right nun 2 yeah nun 2 <laughs> i take it all back <laughs> growing on me <laughs> all right uh, now I got a couple of questions. I think some good questions here. Philip writes, uh, "Do you think the proliferation of user reviews online have has more dumbed down film reviewing or made proper reviews more noteworthy?" So, what's the premise here that the proliferation of people just spouting off and expressing their opinion on forums like Rotten Tomatoes, for instance, Metacritic, mm-hmm. is that diminishing the work of professional writers and film critics? Uh, is it yes? Is it dumbing down the notion of film reviewing, or is it making proper reviews more noteworthy? Hmm. Or, or, or I, I would add, putting more pressure on professional reviewers to amp up their game, right? Because every Tom, Dick, and Harry out there can write a review and post the blog. Sure. I don't know. I mean, do you feel that pressure? I don't think I. I don't feel no. For one thing, I don't feel that pressure because I'm not changing the way I do things because you know TikTok's so popular. Um. It's a good question, though. I I don't think it's necessarily dumb things down, but I do think it. I think the it's weird to say like the sanctity of film criticism, but it's like I I don't think of myself that highly in, in that kind of regard either. But it's like the fact that yes, it's so easy to just like shove an opinion online into forums where it can be viewed fairly easily. Um, it does. Yes, it does lead to you know people that just don't write very much and don't you know it's not a particularly strong talent of theirs but yet they get a lot of attention or you know increase the awareness of so many different things like user reviews or any number of other sources where you can kind of share an opinion online it's made it a crowded area for sure um it, uh, I, but I, I think it works in tandem with the idea of of proper reviews being noteworthy, as as Philip has phrased it, because there are you know plenty of esteemed critics, people that I you know like to read or what have you, uh, that stand out because of the quality just seems so <laughs> demonstrably better <laughs> than anything than you know other things that are out there uh, when it comes to you know plain old regular user reviews compared to you know actual trades or publications that are you know verified in one way or another. Um, yeah, I, this is an area in which I think a, a bit of gatekeeping is worthwhile. Um, obviously, the, the the legitimacy granted to a reviewer has a lot to do with the publication that that employs them. And in our generation, that kind of underwent a major shift because a lot of things moved online mm-hmm. as opposed to sort of you know the old old format. And in terms of the new proliferation of just like anybody out there uh, putting out unspell checked nonsense on on a personal blog or or even bypassing that entirely to just like talk to a camera and posting that online and and like begging in that sort of pathetic way to you know don't forget to like and subscribe please um it's it's not a category of film reviewership that i take seriously to begin with 
So I I don't feel like um, it's something that I need to find a way to incorporate into my diet. That's I, I, I agree. <laughs> my, my patience doesn't extend very far for it. I think that like, sometimes I think that like, I mean, I, I agree about sometimes it is good to have some, some, someone, some gatekeeping and stuff I do. But you know what I think is interesting that I don't hear brought up enough. And I feel like you sort of were either maybe hinting at it. Is that like um, this notion of like, Oh, I know what it was. You were saying this generation, like obviously online reviews had become, you know, that had become much bigger than actual public, you know, pieces of paper and publishing and stuff. Absolutely. And then of course that means that anybody you write with a blog or a video or YouTube can do that. But one thing that I think that um, we don't really consider that much is that, and I wonder, I'm sure it's changed by now, but um, so but what, when did crawl come out? 2019. It's, it was in theaters, right? So it wasn't. Yeah. So I remember when Crawl came out. Um, I don't think Paramount. It didn't screen for critics. It didn't screen for critics. And then once the reviews came out, a lot of critics were like, hey, this is pretty fun. You know, this is a good genre. Like, um, yeah, it was a misstep you know, on Paramount. It was a misstep on Paramount. It is. But I think, I think what it was was that the misstep that Paramount made is that they weren't realizing that the generation of critics, you know, in the last 10 or 15 years are not the same, what we would think of as like critics from like, I don't know, 70s or 80s or whatever that, that kind of poo-pooed John Carpenter and genre stuff. It's like, yeah, man, most critics I know really like genre stuff. So that is to me is being like, well, the studios are thinking, oh, it's, it's basically this like older stuffy critic thing. And I was like, well, actually, I don't think a lot of critics are like that anymore. I'm sure there's some that are still around, obviously, that are older, but it's like, yeah, like, so it's not just the online thing changed that, you know, it's also that just the younger generation likes a lot of genre stuff. And so you probably should have screened crawl, you know? Yeah, I mean, and I don't want to get too focused on one specific movie, but it's the kind of thing where I, well, I sure, mean, yeah. if a, you know, plenty of movies can overcome the nature of being a genre film, then just be, be recognized for, you know, doing it what it's doing well like i feel like ebert would have loved crawl in the same way he loved lake placid like i mean it's not beyond oh, no. ebert ebert but ebert loved genres i mean ebert well if he gets a give and take though yeah. he hates he hates slasher films i mean so i mean it, it uh, goes, it's true he, he yes like, he doesn't like a lot of gore but he, but he liked evil dead too or... like it's unpredictable if that guy with some of these things it's true but I, I here's the thing i guess i feel like okay i don't not really sure where i would stand with the ebert thing I and mean, he's one of my favorite and influential critics that I grew up with. But I do think that I, I guess I feel like there was definitely a generation of critics that it's like, you tell them that they have to go see, right. You tell them that they have to go see Friday 13th part, whatever. And there's like, ugh, more trash. I feel like. No, I don't disagree with you on this front. I, I, I understand what you're yeah. saying as far as, yes, there's a, there's a crowd of, of, you know, people that suffice to say, look at certain films a certain way that, yeah, probably wouldn't be the most beneficial when it comes to reviewing certain kinds of films. I, but it's hard to like how much it comes down to being a case by case thing, right? When it comes to movies like Crawl or others that don't get screened for critics for specific reasons that they're going with. But I, and, but I think the difference is that I think even though I started this podcast saying that I'm not that invested in Five Nights and Freddy, I hmm. think in general, you know, the three of us here, I think we all are rooting 
for any kind of genre. I don't think or genre like horror, horror specifically. I don't think any of us are like, Ugh, this is going to be terrible. It's like, no, honestly, I'm, I'm always hoping that I'm going to find something that I like in some kind of horror movie and stuff. I mean, I think that's, that's the difference. That's, you know me. That's my mo. I'm I'm very optimistic when it comes to just wanting to experience a movie and hoping to find the best in it. Uh, child right. wa- wanting for child death, like Mike. I don't know how he feels in that category. <laughs> if it has it, I love it. Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't. The better deliver elsewhere. But, well, um, so mm-hmm. I, one question along these lines. I I, I kind of feel like. You know, the kind of people who, whether they do it on an amateur basis or are trying to generate content and, and do this professionally, albeit in the new platform of social media, what what is the exact percentage? I'm not presuming you know, but I'd be curious mm-hmm. what the percentage is of people who are really engaging with every new release and all the international films and the festivals while doing that from their private YouTube channel at home, right? Versus the people who are doing movie reviews, but in niche categories, so, like, I'm a huge horror fan. Please subscribe to my horror film review channel. Oh, true. Right. Yeah. Right. Or, like, I'm an action fan. So, like, check out my breakdown of all the kills in John Wick or something like that, as opposed to, like, doing the total work of, of you know, reviewing films week by I, week. I would, I would, I would, I would bet that there's far more in the kind of niche category when it comes to video reviewers, right. that kind of thing, than there are of someone. <laughs> like me that yes sees everything and writes about everything i mean that's i i feel like that's less of a thing when it comes to video reviewers um yeah that that was my that mm -hmm. was my thinking on it and i feel like that reality also kind of changed the equation of what exactly the quote-unquote legitimate critics are up against when they assess whether or not they have to up their game which is the premise of the question yeah for that's for sure fair as far as how to think of it but it's a good question philip it's it's something i think about often when it comes to uh, the amount of just stuff you see online and versus like the stuff that's of some kind of quality value uh we have one other question from irene johnson she writes are you looking forward to the new kaiju content coming out this year we are getting a godzilla movie and a tv series what a time to be a godzilla fan i mean obviously sister irene Irene asking that question sister irene uh, yeah she phoned in from 1950s uh france <laughs> to, to, be, to be curious she's doing okay. i mean yeah in the past week i got a new trailer for godzilla minus one the new japanese toho godzilla film coming out the monarch tv series that's coming to apple um we already know there's a new godzilla versus kong or godzilla and kong movie coming and out next kong. year right yeah uh, we just had the skull island animated series on netflix there's another skull island series coming to disney soon enough as well oh my God. i mean i am drowning in all this stuff right now and yes i'm very happy about it um it uh, makes me thrilled to to know that the that this stuff uh, lives on and no sequels to the emmerich film so i mean just all the more reasons to celebrate like that's yeah like, that's true it, it all it's all worked out in that regard godzilla minus one by the way looks fucking awesome i can't believe it's and it's gonna be like in imax apparently in america this is great um so yeah, yeah. minus one is also just a small i mean this is mm-hmm. completely self a selfish thing to say but it's with a great degree of like validation because I've been saying for years as a Godzilla fan, the 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 Godzilla movie I want to see is a remake of the 1950s version. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know to what extent this is, but I want to see Godzilla in that really sort of traumatic post-war recovery period. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The, politics yeah. that, the politics and then like make it period specific. 
historically, politically, like that keys into what the allegorical sort of premise of Godzilla is to begin with, right? Which is like this this horrific manifestation of nuclear power, but also of humiliating defeat um, in the war. And so like that is the, the the period Godzilla that I've been wanting to see for a while. And when I heard that this film is, you know, from what I can tell, going to cover that ground, I thought yeah. like, awesome, I'm so on board. Yes. I, you know, I, I was so happy with what they did with Shin Godzilla as far as basically doing that, but in a modern setting and using, you know, modern day uh, tragedies that happened in Japan. Like now we're just like, yeah, just going back to ground one, but using today's technology to make that happen yet still have a, you know, evoking the, the you know, the look of, of, of the 54 Godzilla as far as I'm sure it's still a CG Godzilla, but it's still like trying to have the vibe of man in suit. So we'll see, I, I'm very excited about it. It, has, it feels like it has lots of potential to do a whole and a lot of different things that are certainly on its mind, uh, not unlike uh, none too. So with all oh, that said, that's not enough feedback. Feedback. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to do it for this week's episode about Now There Nave. You can buy more of my work in a rehearsal blog at CodyZeke.com. Everything I do ends up over there. I write for We Believe Entertainment and Why So Blue. I am also on Twitter, Aaron's PS4. Peter Paris, where can people find more of you? Um... Currently writing at We Live Entertainment. Uh, and then Owls uh, is uh, uh, Pajamo, like pajamas, but with an O, on uh, Instagram and you know, just Twitter. Right. Well, it's not Twitter anymore, but I'm not going to say the name. <laughs> Mama named a quit Twitter. I'm going to call him Twitter. Um, exactly. <laughs> Mike Dillon, anything you want to plug? Uh, nothing to plug. I mean, if, if you enroll in my university, come take my class. But otherwise... Um, I do want, since I haven't been on in a while on the pod, uh, I want to voice unequivocal support to my friends and colleagues in the WGA and SAG. Um, some of them are on the picket line every day and they're burning through their savings in this fight for fair wages. Um, if your listeners are interested, there's a good charity. Uh, it's called the Entertainment Community Fund. So entertainmentcommunity.org. Um, you know, people can give a little and lend a hand. If they if they're inclined to those who are struggling um, the most during the strikes, great. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. Um, you can find all the other episodes of Out Now Third Name on iTunes, Audible, Spotify, and Stitcher. Feel free to email us at outnowpodcast@gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We all have handles over there, and iTunes reviews and ratings, of course, good to get those. Uh, Mike, Peter, thank you both for joining me for this double episode here. Yeah, thank you, and uh, Mike, good talking to you, Peter. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, totally. And that is going to do it for this week's episode. Next week, we'll be talking A Haunting in Venice, the latest in the Brana Christie. So yeah, that is going to do it for this week's episode. So until next time, so long. And Or substitute the charm machine that is Abe. Don't hey, many guests try. So yeah, I bet they all say no. You know, <laughs> not not everyone's is attuned to doing this in the way that Abe and I have. So okay, we already. I think we're already. Let's do this.